Hey everybody, what's going on? It's Steve. I uh, just wanted to give you a little disclaimer about this week's episode. In addition to there being a very special guest and your lovely, lovely hosts for the show, there are also some animals. There's some there's some Wild Kingdom stuff going on on this week's episode. So here's the thing. We've got a dog on this episode. We've also got a cricket, okay? 510 episodes of this podcast. We've never had a cricket decide to crash the party. Well, this is that episode. I have done my best to mitigate the cricket noises. Uh, This thing was chilling outside of Bob's window while we were recording. And since we were in the middle of an interview, there was nothing we could do about it. Uh, Like I said, I'm going to do my best. But uh, every now and again, if you hear a cricket, it is not in the room with you. It is not in the car with you. It is not in your head. It is in this podcast. Like I said, we'll do our best with it. Other than that, it's an absolutely fantastic episode of the show. We're very proud of it, and we really hope that you enjoy it. Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Talking Comics Podcast. It is Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. You're listening to episode number 510. I am your host, Steve Say, and joining me for this week's show is Mr. Bob Ryer. Happy birthday to Jack Kirby. Indeed. Happy birthday. Aaron Amos is here. Taco eating Aaron Amos. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> John Burkle is also here. How is it September already? I don't know, dude. That is crazy. I don't, I don't know. And back to brave the dangerous land of Oz, the Ringo-nominated David Pepos is also here. Hi. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. I'm excited to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just want to thank David for hanging out with us tonight. He's going to be with us for the whole show. I am. I'm very excited. Yeah, we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. We're going to talk about the OZ a little bit later, get in depth with that story. And uh, we got lightning rounds. We're going to, I know we said we were going to do questions, but we're not. We're going to save those for next <laughs> next time or, or a time when we don't have a special guest sitting in the rotating chair. And uh, we hope that you all understand and look forward to us answering those at a later time. Uh, that Spider-Man trailer, that Spider-Man No Way Home trailer came out. We'll probably talk about that for a few minutes. And uh, beyond that, we're just going to get right in here with uh, with David. So tell us real quick about the Ringo stuff. You said that you didn't know until people started to contact you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, for those who, who, who don't know about the OZ, just kind of a quick 
quick reminder, it's uh, it's like what if the Hurt Locker took place in The Wizard of Oz. It's about uh, <laughs> Dorothy Gale's Iraq War veteran granddaughter who finds herself stranded in the war-torn land of Oz. Um, and uh, so we, we launched our first Kickstarter campaign for the series uh, last year. Uh, we, we, we were blown away by the response to that book. Yeah. And um, yeah, sort of the, the, the icing on top was uh, we... Uh, we lobbied our backers to nominate us for the Ringo Awards, um, which are sort of, for those who aren't aware, I, I consider them to be like the Golden Globes of the, the or, uh, or the Emmys of the uh, comics industry alongside the uh, Eisner Awards' Oscars. And uh, yeah, we found out this week that um, the OZ was nominated for uh, Best Single Issue or Story, um, as well as our cover artist, Mon House, uh, being nominated for Best Cover Artist and our letterer, D.C. Hopkins, being nominated for Best Letterer. And, um, yeah, I'm still kind of pinching myself over all of that. I I think they announced the nominations, um, I think it was last Wednesday. And uh, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles on the West Coast. And, uh, I got up uh, with my puppy Ruby, and then suddenly my phone started blowing up, uh, just saying, congrats on the Ringos, congrats on the Ringos. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea. Um, you had, like, text was, messages and stuff? Yeah, I just got the text messages. And so I was, you know, immediately, like, I felt like this cold chill in my stomach trying to find out, you know, had they announced yet? Um, I didn't know when they were going to announce. And so, yeah, we're, we're so thrilled um, that, uh, you know, this book, um, you know, resonated so much with our readership and resonated so much with the Ringo Awards judges. And, uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> you know, we're only one of two self-published books in the entire ballot this year so we are That's amazing uh, we're really blown away and we're really grateful and uh, uh yeah nothing can stop the yellow brick road warriors <laughs> we, we're, we're very grateful to all of them for all of their support that's quite the honor man congratulations to everybody thank you seriously yeah, it's, it's, it's an enormous honor and honestly i mean i was so thrilled when we got our first nominations for uh, spencer and Locke uh, a few years back um but this is like a different kind of suite because we did it all on our own. Um, uh, you know, we, we don't have a publisher backing us. We don't have a distributor um, besides the handful of retailers who, uh, who who got our discounted retailer tier. Um, we don't really even have much in the way of retailers, um, uh, you know, uh, backing the book. And um, the fact that we were able to do it on our own steam, uh, thanks to interfacing directly with the readership. Um, I've never experienced anything like that in the comics industry before. And I, I, I'm, it's really it's really profound. Now that you've been through the like the entire process with Kickstarter from start to finish for the first issue of the OZ, yeah, do you still do you still love it? Is it still like yeah. your platform of choice for releasing stuff, like creator and stuff? Well, so I I still love Kickstarter, and I plan on continuing to to do Kickstarters for the foreseeable future. It's interesting though your your question about whether or not it's the platform of choice, um, because I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. Um, I think we as comics fans are trained to see things in binary. You know, we, we see Marvel versus DC. We see uh, creator-owned versus licensed. We see direct market versus self-publishing. And um, I think, if anything, the lesson that the OZ taught me, and I think we've been seeing it a lot lately with Scott Snyder and his eight-book deal at Comixology and Dark Horse. We see it with all the creators who have, uh, have uh, taken their exodus to Substack 
even see it mm-hmm. with creators like Charlie Stickney with White Ash, or Pat Shand with Destiny New York that have started in Kickstarters and made it to the direct market, is I, I think it's not an either-or proposition anymore. I think it's it, it's going to be an and. And I understand why people would immediately, their immediate response would be kind of a knee-jerk, you know, stomach-clench thing. And I, I want to explain why I don't think it is. And 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 that's because... I think we've got our diehard Wednesday Warriors, the backbone of the industry. I love them to death. Um, you know, they're, they're hitting their shop every week. But there are right. some people who, no matter what you do, you could offer them money and they would not go to a comic shop. Like, you know, it's just not part of the way that they're going to live their life. What, you know, it, it might not even be like they don't like comic shops. It's just it doesn't fit in the way they live their lives. There's some people that buy their books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Comixology, and that's primarily how they buy their books. Right. Some people who buy them primarily at cons, you know, they, they're, they're not diehard comics fans, but they go to a con and they just see what looks interesting to them. Um, and then there's the Webtoons crowd. And finally, there's the people who primarily buy their books via crowdfunding. You know, they, they want a, a little bit more of an eclectic kind of selection. They want something that's considered more artisanal, you know, uh, uh, straight <laughs> from the creator to the reader. And, uh, it kind of hit me uh, that, you know, there's a real diaspora of readership. There's all these different kinds of pockets, but the overlap is honestly not huge. Um, you know, we, we could make our last Kickstarter. We had uh, 1,250 backers for the OZ. For Kickstarter, that's an amazing number of people. For the direct market, if, if I only had 1,250 copies of a book in Diamond, I'd be in danger of Diamond canceling it. Right. And so that's why... There, there is some overlap, but I really don't think it's considered, I don't think it's considered cannibalizing. I don't even think it's, you know, plugging away at the same readership over and over again. I think there's a way to offer different things on Kickstarter versus different things in the direct market. You can offer more rewards in one shot on Kickstarter because there is that flexibility of your storefront. Whereas, you know, in the direct market, you have a different rate of frequency and a lower price point. And so I think we're going to see this more and more in the industry, I, I think, is I think it's incumbent upon creators to, to invite all these different pockets of readership to the same table. Um, I, I, I reject the premise that the comics reading audience is eroding by any means. I think it's just it's just as fragmented as every other bit of pop culture and multimedia today. And I think it's incumbent upon really creators at a grassroots level to try to reconnect that readership. I think you make several fine points. I'm going to have to sit and think on that for a little while. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I I say all this, I say all this as a converted skeptic, you know, I, I, you're also on the other side of the fence, right? Like readers are sometimes going to see it differently. Yeah. For whatever reason. Absolutely. I mean, and that's why, you know, it's, it, it, that's why I see it as it's, it's no longer sort of a binary choice. And, um, you know, and I think it, it's just different ways to draw readers into different projects. Um, because ultimately, I think, you know, if there's a reader who doesn't want to buy anything on Kickstarter, that's totally fine. I mean, I, I have a trade paperback for Scouts Honor dropping uh, September 22nd, pluggity plug. Uh, you know, there's, there, <laughs> I think offering different outlets for my different work, I think is it's a good way to sort of expand that net. And that way, you know, we're able to hit people with different price points and different budgets. 
Um, I will say that is another good thing about Kickstarter in general is, you know, while it's not a catch-all, it's certainly not a silver bullet, but it helps in that, you know, if somebody doesn't have, you know, a huge budget to blow because they don't want to get like a limited edition Spencer and Lock plushie or, or, or whatever, you know, there are still ways that, okay, if you have $10, you can get a double-sized issue of the OZ, plus you get the first issue of Spencer and Lock, plus you get the first issue of going to the chapel, plus you get 20 other number one bonus comics from a bunch of, uh, of indie comics creators like Justin Jordan and, um, and Rylan Grant and Clay Adams and Brenton Lingell and, and Eric Palicki and a few other names. Um, you know, once you start adding all that together, yeah, that does actually, you are still getting a pretty good deal for your, for your buck for $10. Um, so we're trying to meet readers where they're at, both in terms of accessibility, but also in terms of budget. And also in terms of making sure that they feel like they get plenty of bang for their buck in terms of content. Um, because at the end of the day, I know that there's a way of, there's a school of thinking where, you know, you, you, you get your metal covers and you do all the crazy variants and you do the regular version and the virgin version and the blank version. And, and I understand that that's a way of doing business, but it's not the way I want to do business. If I wanted to just make product, I could just work in the stock market, you know? Um, <laughs> I make these stories because I want people to engage with them and, and, and feel something on an emotional level. And so while we've got, you know, fun bells and whistles and little bits of merch to like, you know, sweeten the deal, ultimately it comes down to the story. And are we giving readers something meaty and substantial to make sure that, you know, because of the length of time between Kickstarters, they feel like they're still getting a good deal. And um, I, I really think, I think, and I think even this Ringo Award, I think, kind of illustrates that point. I, I'm working with such an A-list creative team with uh, artist Ruben Rojas and colorist Whitney Kogar and letterer DC Hopkins that I think the OZ stands toe-to-toe with anything in the direct market. Honestly, anything even in the big two, um, I think, in terms of, of, of just pure visual quality. And I think uh, just seeing their pages, even without my writing on it, I think it would still be uh, worth the ticket. Damn, dude. <laughs> you are one of my favorite people to have and talk to about comics on the show because I, you ask one question and you go on a journey and I don't have to do a damn thing. <laughs> yeah, I go on a tear. I go on a tear. Uh, you know, it, it's, I, I've been thinking a lot about comics for a long time. Um, yeah, I mean, people, longtime listeners of, of, of the podcast will, will probably know my bibliography, but. You know, I got yeah. my start as a DC intern. Um, I, I worked on uh, Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis. I, uh, you know, I served as the reviews editor at Newsarama for uh, over a decade. Um, and you know, now I'm marking four years, five years, four years, four years as, as a published comics creator. And um, yeah, you know, it's just a lot of different angles to to think about this stuff. And uh, I'm a third generation comics reader. I live and breathe this stuff. I come by it honestly. And uh, at the end of the day, I look at the whole industry through a, a lens of sustainability. Um, how do I get to be a 30-year man, like a Grant Morrison or a Dan Slott? And um, so I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Yeah, I'll probably get in trouble just for having this many opinions. But I, <laughs> I, I think in order to be a creator in an industry like this that's so volatile, I think you should have strong opinions and you should kind of have a sense of, where do you want your career to go and what are your aspirations and what do you want to be 
as both an individual creator and what do you want your impact in the industry to be? And um, I don't pretend I have, I, I certainly don't have all the answers, but at least I'm starting to come up with, the, with some new questions. Well, we're happy to have your perspective on the show. It's not one that we get uh, to hear too much of, so it's nice. It's refreshing. Definitely some food for thought. All right. I think that we should. Does anybody have any questions for David or we should move into lightning rounds? Let's move. All right. Let's move because we'll go right back around to David and his opinions and the questions about the OZ a little later, right? That yeah. is right. That so is correct. Thank you, Bob. All right, Bob, why don't you kick us off then? <laughs> okay. United States of Captain America, number three by Chris Cantwell, Dale Eaglesham, Matt Miller, and Joe Carmagna. Bring Steve and Sam to Kansas for an encounter with Joe Gomez, the Captain America of the Kickapoo tribe. Joe's been targeted by the Red Skull's daughter, Cynthia. And she and Speed Demon have also, just because they're rotten people, have also set their sights on a local Cheyenne man who's running for governor. Some surprising events here, plus a non-surprising guest star, considering what book this is, just made for a very engaging read. Uh, the backup origin story for Joe was excellent as well, with Darcy Little Badger, David Cutter, and Roberto Poggi layering some really nice depth of character into what might have just been standard fare. Now, similarly to United States of Cap, the Wonder Woman Black and Gold Anthology as we're doing the same to mostly great effect. Here in their issue number three, there's a nice nice mix of stories that they're set across Diana's long history. A highlight for me was, well, it's by writer Amy Garcia, artist Sebastian Fiamura, and it's entitled The Stolen Lasso of Truth. It wasn't really, it just sort of got left behind when Wonder Woman apprehended some ne'er-do-wells, and a Chicago teenager named Sophia, well, she has an interesting couple of days with it in her possession. As the lasso gives her some insight into the people in her neighborhood, as well as making her feel stronger, a little more with a sense of purpose, that she that she means something. Diana tells her, though, at story's end, your strength comes from within, Sophia. Being scared of not being good enough and being scared of not being seen is part of being human. All that matters is that you see yourself. You are enough, and that is the truth. Ah, that's that wonderful. That's the good stuff. There you go. Black Widow number 10 by Kelly Thompson, Elena Casagrande, Rafael de la Torre, Elizabeth D'Amico, Jordi Belair, and Clayton Cowles brings the I Am the Black Widow arc to a conclusion with an issue-long battle with Apogee and his followers. Now, not every loose end gets tied up. It is comics after all. But one thread that looks to be something special is Natasha's finding out that having backup is a pretty sweet new way to look at life after all she's been through so far just in this Kelly Thompson, Atlanta Casagrande series, let alone the rest of her history. Finally, there's Mom, or Mother of Madness Number 2, by Amelia Clark, Marguerite Bennett, Leila Lees, Triona Farrell, and Haley Rose Lyon. Our lead, Maya Kuyper, has gone all in on using her emotionally triggered, hormone-derived powers for good, and so she's assembled a team of, well, people in chairs to keep things moving forward as, as mom becomes a local celebrity. While Maya dives into her pursuit of that human trafficking ring we saw at the end of issue number one, a ghost from her past reappears, and that threatens to undermine all her progress in the years she's had since he was last around. Script by Ms. Clark and Ms. Bennett, 
brings home a series worth of poignant messes in just the first three pages alone here. <laughs> and the art by Leila Lees and Triona Farrell finds a balance between gothic and cartoony that really helps to bring home the emotional beats, particularly during some amazing multi-page layouts. I'm just loving this so far, and though I'm looking forward to issue number three, I'm also sad that's going to be the last one for now. I was going to ask. That was only a three-parter. Only three. Hmm. That is it for me. That's exciting. I, I want to read Mom number two. I got to pick that up. I enjoyed the first one. Uh, hey, we got a special guest. <laughs> That's my. For those of you listening, at home. she is not a fan of Mom. That is, that is, no. that is my puppy Ruby, who's not a she, fan of Mom. <laughs> she didn't like hey. the uh, last season of Game of Thrones. No. Who did? All right. How you doing, David? Are we good? We're good. And Ruby Ruby is now enjoying a, a, a nice bully stick. She, uh, it's, my, my, my partner is out of town for the first time since we picked up Ruby. And so she's been a little on edge and she heard something outside of our apartment down the hallway. And she thought, despite there being two locks on the door, that an intruder was coming <laughs> for me. And so now she has a bully stick and she's no longer a guard dog. So... Uh, hopefully no one is actually coming for me. <laughs> if they do, we have it all on tape. Yeah, if you have it all on tape. I'll help you from Canada. Don't worry. Thank you. Yeah, I have no one here. It's just me and Ruby. So Black Widow number 10 was amazing. It was such... Dude, the Elena Casagrande art has been so consistently uh, like incredible across the board. There's at least, I mean, there's several pages in every issue, but there's always, there's always going to be one that stands Mm -hmm. out. And every time this book comes out, I look forward to reading it because I want to find that one like super dynamic page and just take it all in. And you get like a three part split for, uh, for the big page in this one of all the all the characters, all the widows fighting all the spiders, if you will. And oh my God, it's just so gorgeous. And the story has been really cool. And we got like a a cool new character with a pretty tragic power set. I wouldn't you say? Yes. And I don't want to give it away. No, we don't give too much away, but something, one of the characters has a bad moment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, I kind of wondered, you kind of, suspected that something was going to happen the way they were hinting at it when she was making the choice. It was going to go one way. It was either going to go weird, sort of pull it out of the, you know, pull her out of the ashes mm-hmm. or she's going to make the ultimate, you know, sacrifice. And I, you know, one way or the other, it was going to be special and it delivered. I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed this book. I really, really enjoyed that team. I enjoyed a special guest. Yeah. Um, and I always want to see more Anya. I don't I don't see it. <laughs> mm. Anya's just that was, cool. That was going to be my other question. Is Elena Casagrande continuing on this, or is this over? No, there's an issue 13 solicited with this team. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay yeah. then. And I take it back. There are two uh, massively impressive yes. pages in this one. I forgot about the other one. The I turned the page one. and yes. I was like, oh... That oh, that one too. Okay. <laughs> so now, this yeah, book was, was due to end apparently at number eight, but fans brought it back. That's awesome. 
That is awesome. We actually, um, I, I, and I also, I lied earlier. We have one question because it's relevant to this. Uh, this one comes from Dick Grayson. When you guys read Black Widow, do you read in a Russian accent? I do with Yelena. So for me, ever since the Black Widow movie and having Florence Pugh play that character, I now hear her voice when I read that character in the <laughs> comics. Uh, and it's very entertaining and very dry and very witty. And I just love it so much. I love that that character is now in the MCU and that Florence Pugh is the one to have brought her there because she's an incredible actress. And I loved that character in that movie. So uh, what about you, Bob? Do you hear Russian accents when you read Black Widow? It depends what they're doing. Back in the original days of the Black Widow, I read her with uh, a Rocky and Bullwinkle style Russian accent, I suppose. Oh no! Well, I was a kid. What did I know? And that was my uh, that was my uh, go to. I think in in some moments, obviously, if they're trying to blend in, they're going to go with some bland mid Atlantic accent. But if they're by themselves, I would say, yes, I, I don't think I read Natasha the way, but I do get, a, I throw a hint of it into Yelena. Okay. Uh, Aaron, how about you? I'm trying to think. I don't think I do. Um, I don't know if I ever really assign voices when I'm reading them like that. You don't hear I, voices in your head when you read comics? Not when I'm reading the comics anyway. Really? Uh, <laughs> you what? hear voices at other times? <laughs> the, com- the comics is the only way to shut them down. Okay. So everybody sounds like you when you read comics? I don't I, believe I, that. I really have to read now to figure it out. I don't think I ever pay attention. It's sort of just the information comes in. Maybe it's just binary, ones and zeros or something that hits my brain. And just, I don't know. I don't remember. As I'm sitting here, I don't remember a voice. And even as I'm remembering reading the issue, I don't remember a voice. Um, you know, I remember... I know I put, you know, certain inflections and all that stuff, sort of trying to make sure I, you know, I deliver to myself the humor that's intended or the, you know, the, the, the emphasis on whatever, you know, syllables sort of just taken into context how they would react. But I don't know if I ever put an accent there. Fascinating. America. <laughs> John, what about you? I'm kind of like Aaron. I don't, I don't assign accents, but I remember, and Bob might remember this. Back in the day, they used to write them with like an accent. Like they mm-hmm. would, they would like write the if you. So if you write it with an accent, then I'm probably going to say it that way. But as I'm sitting here reading it, I, I I'm kind of just processing it in, in art. I don't I don't do care. I, I don't do <laughs> voices, and I don't you know like reenact the scenes and and all of that. But uh, you don't jump I, up on the couch and no, I, start I, like reading out loud. No, but my my daughter now does the um, the the Florence Pugh the the posing like why do you pose and all that. So she always makes fun of my son when he's goofing around doing something. She goes, "Why do you do that?" And she gets down in that stance and does the head bob. It's hysterical, but she can't do a Russian accent either. So has uh, she called him a poser yet? Oh yeah, but he is a poser, so it's okay. Oh wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't listen to this. I'm okay with saying that. He thinks he's cooler than he is. <laughs> David, do you hear voices? Do you do you hear voices when you read accents and Black Widow specifically? Hmm. Boy. Um, 
boy, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of it. It's like, it's like, how do I, how do I read it? Um, <laughs> this was a great question, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> it is a great question. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily do, but I feel like that's because I, I think I think of her, I don't think of her with like ScarJo's voice, but I think of her as like, she's been almost like Americanized like with her time in the U S. So I think she's lost that accent, but she still has like a very like terse way of speaking. Yeah. She could just bust it out at any time. She's such a good spy that she's lost it. Yeah. Like, 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 but I think there's like, like a small hint, like, you know, that like, she's not really from around here, but (laughs) she's kind of flattened out her accent, I think to a pretty significant degree. But then again, you know, I, I, I think it depends on the writer. You know, I, I think there are ways that you can write it. Not like full Claremont where they're just like throwing in like international <laughs> colloquialisms for like, just to remind you, hey, Nightcrawler's very German. I think different writers, depending on how, like there are ways to convey that even in a silent medium like comics. But I think I, it's funny for me whenever I'm reading uh, a comic, I'm always thinking, how does the dialogue work visually first and foremost? Um, and so, I, but I think certain things, certain nuances, like the accent, that it does get lost in that approach. All right. There you go. There's some very deep answers to what was seemingly an easy question. <laughs> we learned things about each other tonight. This is nice. All right, <laughs> we should probably move on. Aaron, what have you got for me? Shut the damn. All right, let me get this animal away from me. Okay. Are we ready? The, right. the podcast of dogs tonight. Basically, she's she's circling me. It's like she's waiting for the opportunity to take me out. I'm, <laughs> I'm not really sure. And I'm not sure she might she not knows have what one. you did. No, just wait for me to close my eyes. All right, so my first book, Superman, Son of Kyle L. Didn't know what to expect from this book, but I'm actually really enjoying it from DC. Uh, Tom Taylor, John Timms, Gabe Altaev. So this is a situation where we have John trying to figure out what his role as a hero is going to be. You know, he's been through a couple things here and there over the years. Um, and he watches the world from a different perspective. But unlike his father, this planet is his home, which means that he has a, a role that's separate from what he's ident- who he's identified as the world's greatest hero, his dad. Um, he basically has skin in this game. Um, Lois wants him to experience life as a normal kid, but he understands that he's never going to be a normal kid, and he doesn't really want to go into this whole secret identity space, but understands that there's some sacrifices that he may have to make. However, after an all-too-timely event at school, which is a little bit too ripped from the headlines, a quick chat with his dad, and, uh, you know, as millennials do, a check of his phone... Uh, John becomes aware that he needs to be a different type of Superman. Um, but doing so has probably placed him on the radar of someone who has some other plans for him. So it's going to be interesting. They're sort of ramping up the giving him an agency as Superman, but separating him from his father um, and creating this sort of little mini mystery to start with. So I'm enjoying it. There's two issues in. I'm enjoying it so far. The art is amazing. You know, I always love the uh, John Tim's art. So that's number one. The next book, going back to Thor World, Thor number 16, Donnie Cates, Michelle Bandini, a cover by Livia Coppell. So we've watched, you know, over the last, 
I don't know, arc and a half or so, that Thor has been plagued by this nightmare vision that he saw when he was battling the Black Winter. Um, also having a little bit of an issue with Mjolnir, not really being as obedient as it needs to be. He decides he wants to have a chat with his old friend and former Thor and ex-girlfriend Jane Foster. Um, during the conversation, you know, Thor sort of catches her up on what's going on, about the vision he had. You know, Thanos basically, you know, kicking some ass and taking some names. Um, and, you know, she's basically trying to figure out how to help her old friend. But unfortunately, the conversation is interrupted by, I, I guess this is just what their role is in the Marvel Universe, the Wrecking Crew. Because it's basically <laughs> time for their like annual ass kicking. Someone's always going to kick their ass <laughs> at some point. Just to they're move in, the, they're in the new Captain America, too. I the mean, it's, <laughs> that is literally that, their go-to role. It's just like someone needs to get their ass kicked. Let's just throw in the Wrecking Crew. Um, I didn't really care because it added to the, it, it gave us an opportunity for a Thor Valkyrie team up, which was everything, which I loved. I loved it all. Um, basically once all that's done though, Thor gets summoned by what he believes is a friendly voice, but, uh, it turns out it's not exactly what he thinks it is. And, um, they don't necessarily have good news to share. So it's on to the last part of this little mini arc. It's going to be interesting to see where this leads. Not sure what this is going to do for the whole I don't know, this sort of idea of is Thor worthy, is Thor worthy. We've been playing this thing for a couple years now. I don't know when we're ever going to figure out if he's worthy or not, but they're continuing down this path. Next book, Strange Academy number 12. Love it, love it, love it. Scotty Young and Brett Ramos. Now that we know who the big bad is behind shattering Toth into a million little pieces, um, basically the Academy realizes that, you know, there's some, I don't know what you call, I wouldn't say people, but some things with unfinished business that have come back to bite them in the ass. Um, and essentially, all differences are set aside, and those kids decide they're all going to rally around you know, their, their, their schoolmates, their friends, and they're going to put it all on the line. And I just loved the heart that was in that book and in that, those scenes. Um, it was a great story arc for this book. Um, it was a great culmination of the found family that Scott Young has put together. Um, this, the, the mix of heart and humor and just recalling some characters and cre uh, existing characters and creating new characters that I think will certainly have a place. I truly believe that almost any character in this book can be spun off into their own book if given the right writer and made into the next thing. Um, it's just they, they've been built out that well, and I really, really, really enjoy them. So I love it. Definitely recommend anyone read all 12 of these up to now because I think you need to. Too. I, I don't often say that, but I think you need to in order to really get the the heart of what's been created here, the, the, how this family has formed and what they've gone through to get to this point where they're all really, really willing to just all put it on the line for, for their friend. Oh, and then there's also Howard the Duck. But, you know, <laughs> just, that's, a, that's a thing. My last book, uh, I read the first issue of this, I think, a month ago. Uh, we got Dark Blood number two by Boom, Latoya Morgan, Walt Barna, Valentin Delandro. Um, in this book, we get a, a little bit more background regarding our main character, Avery Aldridge. He's a war vet, a family man. And he basically just wants to provide the best possible life for his family, his wife and his young child. And I believe it's being sort of hinted at that there's another on the way. But of course, <sighs> he's a black man in 1955 Alabama. So, you know, he's got some hurdles to get over. Um in the backdrop of the, the, the bus boycott in the Deep South, um, it's pretty much everything, all he can do to sort of get to and from his job as a 
a waiter every day safely until one day he can't. And unfortunately, uh, he runs into a little bit of trouble that lands him requiring a little bit of medical attention that brings this all too altruistic doctor to his aid, uh, white doctor to his aid. And then it just becomes a bunch of Tuskegee bullshit. But if you know, you know. Um, it's done in a, it's done, I, I really do like the way this book is done though, because it really is drawing on history. Um, it's drawing on, you know, like, like I said, the history of the South, history of the war, history of what life was like after the war for soldiers who came back and, you know, some were welcomed with open arms and others were not. Um, and it's drawing on those things, but it's not making them the main character. It's more so setting the backdrop for the story uh, and letting you know the, the, the context in which this character lives, uh, which I think is, is great. It's not beating you over the head with it, but it's making sure that you're aware of it at all times. Um, and I think this book is, 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 I think it's on its way to being a, probably one of my favorites of the year, because I really just liked the, the visual, the visual aspect of the book being real. Remember I've said in the past, uh, even when we we're referencing Joe Mullen, the difference between a character looking like the character should look versus looking like the stock image of, uh, of said white character with darker ink. Um, and they took the time to really make those touches stand out in this book. And it adds to the overarching story. So again, recommend this book. One and two are out now. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I'm going to stick with it. I do want to give an honorable mention to Project Patron 3 through 5, which I read Steve Orlando. Um, he's just everywhere. Um, this, this year, he just seems <laughs> to be everywhere. Um, and I really enjoy sort of watching where it ramped up to. It's sort of starting into an, going into another arc, I believe, next. But it's sort of ramped up into a nice little twist at the end uh, mystery for that first arc. So I enjoyed it. But that is my lightning round. What was the uh, what was the like full frontal count on that uh, Steve Orlando book? You know what? There was so much <laughs> heroing. There was there wasn't a whole lot of peen this time. Really? Yeah, no peen in this issue. These issues. No, they, they, they no time. Kidding. No time. No time. For no time. No time for peen. Ah, <laughs> uh, Strange Academy, man. I am. I, I. That's the only issue that I haven't read. That's been away for a while, hasn't it? Here's what's interesting about it. The end of the the last page says the end. No. However, you turn the page and, it, and it's a preview of the next issue, 13. Oh, God, so don't I'm do like, that to me. I'm like, why are you doing this? Why Why did you almost give me a stroke while I was reading this book? And then only for, only for me to turn the page again and sort of see what's coming next. You just but, almost gave me a heart attack, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that book is just – it's just perfect. It really yep. is just perfect. Um, it's just – the characters are perfectly crafted. Uh, it's it's very much a situation of. I was trying to figure out how to express this earlier, but you know when you have those enemies that, I guess you are frenemies, I guess to some extent, and and you can talk crap about them or you can insult them, but if you let someone else insult them, you're gonna kick their ass. <laughs> like like I can I can beat this kid up. I can do, but no. We're, when the chips are down, we're all gonna be a team, and that's essentially what happened. All the the issues between all the characters seem to just sort of fade away and they all had one mission. And that just, I don't know, almost brought a tear to my eye. All right. John, why don't you quickly talk to Aaron about Thor? I, I don't know why the word is telling another redundant story. So, um, <laughs> there. no, it, it, I'm sorry. This is just the, the, is Thor worthy? We've been doing this yeah. since original sin. It feels like, and he's not wrong. And I'm, I love the Jane Foster uh, Thor team up to, to beat up the wrecking crew. Uh, 
heavy metal Odin is is a great depiction, but and I, I I'm just I guess I wanted more. I, I didn't want a a retelling of the Thor is worthy storyline again. I don't know honestly know where this could go with this storyline. I don't know why it exists. There's enough. Don't get me wrong. I I have been enjoying Donny Cates' Thor. I have too. It's been a it's been a really good run. I just don't know why we keep having to come back to the Thor is worthy. I feel like after War of the Realms, I thought, or at least I hoped, yeah, after War of the Realms, the way that all culminated into him becoming the All Father. Okay, if he's not worthy, then how the hell yeah. <laughs> is he the All Father? Um, uh, why is uh, Mjolnir not responding? So I I don't know where this is going. I hope. I hope he can turn it around and make it into make it make sense and make it not be like you said redundant. But I don't think he's going to. I think I'll spoil gonna. the story. He's worthy. It's going to end up that way. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to correspond with the movie. Man, you watch that movie. Will come out. It'll be worthy again. It's just fine. It's just. I will say <laughs> I did. I love. I really would love to see a Thor Valkyrie team up book. Even if it's oh, like, that'd be uh, that'd be awesome. Because that was fun. That that whole fight scene was fun. And they can just mm-hmm. spend six issues beating up the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. Let's do it. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. The Wrecking Crew event. Six-parter. But, John, I'm shocked you're not reading Superman, Son of Kal-El. I am. I, I just haven't got to it yet. Uh, it, it, it's. I, I really enjoyed that first issue. And uh, some stuff that came up in Nightwing, uh, which Steve will talk about later, just makes it even more endearing. Uh, yeah, that so, issue. Oh, but yeah, Son of Cal, it's on my t- pile. I just did not, with school back in session, I just did not get as much reading done. And, and I got sucked into a black hole thanks to you. So, kind of. I'm going to, you're, you're peripherally to blame because you sent out a story that sent me into a tailspin. Oh, that one. <laughs> I could feel he was triggered. I could feel like oh, oh, across the web. That uh, stirring up shit. No, no, no. I, I'll get to it in my lightning round. All right. All right. We're actually going to go over to, to David, see if he has any uh, books or recommendations that he wants to talk about before we get to a little bit of the OZ. Yeah. So go ahead, uh, man. First one that I want to recommend, uh, Cable Reloaded. Uh, oh, that's on the list. <laughs> go ahead. Go for it. Oh, go, that, go is, that was I, – I was not expecting a lot out of it, I think, because I didn't know that Al Ewing was writing it. And, um, oh, it was – it was so dope. It was like it was like an '80s action movie, yes. but like set in like sci-fi X-Men space, and does like a really great job at sort of rebooting adult cable in like an or- an organic way. Um, you know, it it it's not quite like when the original five X-Men jumped to the future as kids. And then we're sent back and there was very little, there was very little lasting stuff to that. You know, I mean, besides Iceman's sexuality and um, a, a quick cameo appearance of Cyclops in the Champions book. Um, you know, there wasn't, there was, there was very little, you know, brought back from that era. And so it was really interesting to see the way that Al like really folds in the adventures of young Cable into the older Cable that we all know and love. Um, and, uh, and seeing like the things that he's experienced between when he went back as a kid 
to now returning as an adult. Um, he's sort of, he's older Cable, but he's also a little less seasoned. Um, but he's also further enough in the future that like he doesn't have to be. So it's just really, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And um, the, 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 the action choreography is fantastic. I, I can't say enough great things about Al Ewing's writing in general. I mean, I, he's mm-hmm. the writer I want to be when I grow up. Uh, <laughs> uh, honestly, like I was reading Cable Reloaded and like I, my first thought was, oh my God, this is so good. And then there was like that little feeling of like jealousy, of envy that like I was like, when am I going to write something this good? Um, but <laughs> it it is it is genuinely terrific and a great way to get back on the ground floor for all things cable. Um, if you liked kid cable, you'll probably, this is still, I think a good bridging point from OG nineties cable to kid cable and back. Um, all right. Uh, actually, John, why don't you, do you want to say some stuff about cable reloaded since, uh, it was in your lightning round as well before David moves on? I just want to say Joey, David likes cable. <laughs> no, he's, David's absolutely right. This is a great uh, return to old cable, as I like to call him. Uh, it's basically a heist issue. I am not reading this last annihilation at all. Uh, I, I I didn't even know it was a thing until Sword Number Seven came out. But um, Al Ewing has been doing great stuff on on Guardians of the Galaxy. He's one of those writers that when whatever he does, I want to read uh, no matter what. Uh, but no, it, it's nice to have the classic old, old guy cable with all the pouches and all that 90s nostalgia was just dripping throughout this issue. And I loved every moment of it. Awesome. All right, David, what else you got for us? Yeah, um, it's just uh, Spider-Man Life Story, that annual with uh, J. Jonah Jameson. Um, that was really interesting. Um, I, 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 I and also, I want to give a shout out to um, to anchor Andrew Hennessy and colorist Matt Milla um, because they did some really interesting stuff with Mark Bagley. Um, I think for the better. I think this was one of the better looking Mark Bagley books I've read in quite some time. And um, yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I think I I like Chips Chip Zdarsky's recent Spider Man stuff because it goes so against the grain to what the direct market I think demands right now. You know, it's sort of bigger event drawn storytelling and life story in particular. It, it takes the trappings of an event, but actually it's a story all based on sort of the quieter human moments. Um, And it is a bit of a continuity exercise as well, because it's, it's the premise of it is what if Spider-Man actually started in 1965 and continued to 2020 and aged in real time. Right. Um, and so this is from the perspective of J. Jonah Jameson, um, you know, uh, as he's the guy who, you know, he he kept hiring all sorts of criminals to, like, augment themselves to try to kill Spider-Man. And <laughs> in this case, uh, uh, Matt Gargan, the Scorpion, um, you know, uh, uh, turns on, 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 on Jonah and rats him out to the police. And so this is about J. Jonah Jameson kind of reassessing and reevaluating his life from prison. And, um, Oh, wow. Okay. It's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I think, I think Chip Zdarsky because of his, his online social media presence and, and his, now his newsletter, um, 
you know, the, everyone kind of, I think, underestimates him. They sort of see him as, as, as the class clown, the, you know, the, the guy thrown in jokes and the sex criminals. And um, I think he's, he can be a really poignant writer um, and, and one that really can lock into a, a deep well of emotion. And I think uh, it's always a little bit of cognitive dissonance, even for me, reading his work, knowing that he's capable of this. Um, it still kind of surprises me every time he does it. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, just a, a quick encapsulment of that is uh, this Spider-Man Life Story Annual. It's, it, really, it really surprised me in a, in a very pleasant way um, and uh, definitely was something that, uh, that, that, that was pretty exciting to read. Yeah, Zadarsky definitely has range. Are you reading Stillwater? No, I need to catch up on that. I haven't read it. Yeah, you should yeah, catch up on that because that that's an intense series from him. That's it's very good. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I'm reading right now. I mean, I know the 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 last issue of uh, the Many Deaths of Layla Star comes out. Yeah, and I'm very excited about that. Um, you know, Rom. Uh, v has just been, you know, he's been getting like almost perfect scores on every single issue. And I don't blame him um, because, yeah, it's, this is really like a, a really, uh, honestly, I think it's a really big swing. And I think tonally it's very different from stuff that he's written in the past. Um, I think, you know, it, 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 sometimes writers can kind of gravitate towards a darker tone. Um, and I think you've seen that in a lot of his work. But this is something that, while there is some darker elements for the most part, I think there's a real brightness to it. It's really, I think it's much lighter on its feet than, than his other work. And um, Felipe Andrade, uh, the, the artist on it is just really just knocking it out. I, I don't, I don't remember who's on colors. Um, is it Jordi Belair? Uh, let me see. Um, because whoever's on colors is just really kind of crushing it. Um, I'm opening it up booms uh, website right now to, to, to confirm all this. Um, but Oh no, uh, Felipe might be doing his own colors. Oh, um, and, uh, I, I, sorry. I, I just assume that Jordi Belair is doing everything. Yeah. And, and, and clearly he, he knows his best shades. Um, but I think just by virtue of the tone of the book and, um, you know, I think he's able to kind of take these more, these bolder, choices with his color work he doesn't have to play it straight and um yeah it's 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 i think it's it's my favorite book that that rom's done i've told him as such um but i'm i'm very excited for for that to to i think it wraps up the whole series yeah so uh i'm i'm very excited for for that one to hit as well final issue hitting the stands and then hitting the uh best of awards later this year yeah, seriously. Vote, vote for it. <laughs> it's so good. All right, nice. Very cool, man. That cable reloaded sounds like it's a blast. It's a, it's really dope. I would I would I would wholeheartedly recommend picking it up. Nice. <laughs> All right. John. Yes. Please talk to me about some comic books. Oh, happy to, my friend. Um <laughs> First off, let's let's uh, uh, let's do primordial number one. I was lucky lucky for us, and, and it, it's it's a blessing is that we get some review stuff ahead of time. And I was going through the the Google Drive, and I thought it was just a picture of the the cover, but no, it's it's primordial number one by Jeff Lemire and, and Andrea Sorrentino, 
which comes out on September 15th. And I cannot wait to get my hands on a physical copy of this book. Uh, it's 1961. The space race is over. Both Russia and the United States are dismantling their, uh, their attempts to reach the moon because of the tragic uh, death of two monkeys and a dog by, as they were launched into outer space. But was that really what happened? Uh, I didn't dun, know dun, what this, dun. I know dun, dun, dun. this book feels like a crossover of the classic X-Files, not like when the smoking man was young. So like in the 1960s and Grant Morrison and Frank Quitley's we three, uh, which came oh, out. Don't few, say that. Oh, dude, this is going to, I have a feeling this is going to have some emotional roller coasters to it. Uh, you got a mystery. You have what really happened to the animals. Why did everything get shut down? You have a shadow organization. You have a, um, a, a, a MIT physicist who wants to restart the, the, the space programs, but the, the government won't let him. Uh, set in the 1960s, this, this, this book has me written all over it. Uh, I, I can't wait to read this. I think it comes out in a couple weeks, uh, but th- this book has potential to be greatness with these two creators. Um and so look forward to that. Uh, and then Aaron, Aaron sent out a, 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 a sad tweet or, or message about um, one Nicholas Brendan of, of Buffy fame, once again in trouble with the law with, with some substance abuse issues. And of course, as, as I'm, sitting, I'm sitting there reading the story. I'm like, you know what? I never checked out Boom Studios Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I picked up Buffy the Vampire Slayer Volume 1. Did you know Dan Mora drew this? This is Jordi Belair and Dan Mora. Um, I love what Boom has done with the Power Rangers, how they took the franchise, but they really, it's not a direct adaptation. And the same thing here, this is is Buffy back in high school. And and just like many people, I I loved Buffy when it came out, when it was was a must-watch every week. And then Angel, which I actually enjoyed more than Buffy for a time period. Uh, this is just a fun reimagining of the Buffy mythos. It's not a direct ap- adaptation. Uh, everything that made the early seasons great are here. You know, Buffy's kind of a loner, but opening herself up to Willow and Xander. Giles is kind of a, a bookish prick, but it still has his, you know, the best interests of everybody. They changed Cordelia. She's not so much of a of a diva in this is she's more of a kind of a uh more outgoing friendly popular girl uh which is fine they make spike a little bit more reader friendly maybe a little bit more sympathetic drusilla is still awful as can be it, it i didn't know how much i missed this type of of story uh and and with you know the the creator and his his issues and then uh, some things that have happened to the other the other actors on the show, but uh, if you just want a, a fun nostalgic trip down memory lane, uh, these I've read Buffy Volume One. I'm in the middle of Volume Two right now. It, it holds up. It's got David Lopez on art. Uh, I, I'm I, I I kind of scold myself for not checking out these boom things earlier, but uh, I'm I'm gonna probably try and get caught up with this even though my bank account's probably not going to like me for it but 
uh, I'll come back. I'm pulling a Steve here. I'm going to go full bore and probably buy it all. Yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah. So, do it, man. It's fine. Yeah, it's all good. You know, I don't have to make a mortgage next week. There's going to be more money. Me and it's Aaron, okay. can, me and Aaron are going to do our OnlyFans pages. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Money in the bank, baby. There money we go. The bank. Who wouldn't want that? Oh boy, <laughs> this is too long. <laughs> All right. I am, I'm done. All right. Oh God, what do I even say? What do I say? What do I say to that? I got to move my little thing over here. Um. God almighty. I don't know what to say to you, John. Primordial sounds incredible. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Um, when does that hit the stands for real? September 15th. Oh, that's... It's like that's, two weeks. Yeah. I'm not going to... You said that's in the review folder? Yeah. Oh, God, listen to my voice. It's in the review voice. folder? Yeah. When it's time to <laughs> change. Oh. I've been doing that all day. I was talking to my doctor earlier and my voice kept cutting out on her. I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me lately. No, anything Lavmir and Sorrentino do. I mean, Gideon Falls was incredible. Uh, going back to their Green Arrow and and even Old Man Logan was was fun stuff. So, but this 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 is on another level. This this book six issues. It's going to be great. All right. Speaking of being on another level, is come Joy on back? to my come on to my level while I do my no. lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> That's a segue for you. Oh God! Take two. <laughs> somebody, somebody, give me some lightning so I can do this damn thing. Thank you. How about Thank some you. crickets? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> please bring the crickets back. Yeah, we should have the crickets go after that segue. <laughs> it uh, All right. So, guess what? The manga train it continues to chug. I am diving in. I am reading things. I am all caught up on Chainsaw Man. Like I said on the special podcast that Aaron and I dropped last Friday. Go and check it out. But the thing that I haven't talked about yet is Junji Ito's Censor. Censor Volume 1. This had just come out. And I know I've mentioned Junji Ito on the podcast once or twice, but I never, I've always just seen the art. I've never actually read anything by this creator. And lo and behold, a brand new Junji Ito book came out and this is it for me, folks. Like, I am enjoying Chainsaw Man now. Um, I did enjoy my time with Princess Jellyfish. But this this hit the sweet spot for Steve. This book is wild. So just to give you a quick bit of background, it's a very – this book goes places. But it's basically this town had a missionary come and stay with them. And basically – they love him. They 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 see him as this like higher figure and stuff like that. And then the uh, shogunate comes, and they're like, "We don't like you because you don't abide by our religion. So we're going to toss you into this fiery chasm and sacrifice you." And so they toss this missionary over, and he's got this golden blonde hair that flows all down to his shoulders. He goes into the volcano, and what comes out of the volcano? But like countless amounts of golden hairs and these hairs start to like drape on the trees and drape on the roofs of the houses and the people themselves and the hair starts to kind of like weave in with theirs and by extension get it extensions haha <laughs> gives gives them like powers of a sort 
but it also corrupts. And so this young woman goes and basically finds this village and becomes cocooned in that golden hair and then pops out of it later. And what you get is this series of horror stories that happen within this village. And this is some twisted, awesome stuff going on. Like you want to talk about body horror and just absolutely exquisite manga art. Junji Ito is working on another level. Like I've seen Twitter posts of art and, and like Pinterest boards and stuff like that, but I never actually saw something in its entirety. Um, and this is quite a few pages to this thing. What is this? 241 pages of Junji Ito's art and just watching this story come to life on these pages was so much fun. And there were pages that were flat out terrifying, like the kind of page in uh, the first Gideon Falls with the the guy standing, uh, the old priest sitting on the edge of the bed. Oh, yeah. That, that shot, stuff of that level. There's several of those peppered throughout this volume. And like I was reading, really engaged with it, turned the page, was just like, holy shit, what is that? Um, so it was really entertaining. Like I'm, I'm enjoying dipping my toe into the manga stuff. It's been fun. It's been different and it's not something that I've done a lot of. And so that's been fun. What else do I got for you? Uh, I will quickly talk about the last God. I have been wanting to talk about this for a while. I'm not going to go on for too long because I'm still in the middle of reading it. I am about four-ish, five-ish issues in, and I'll tell you why in a second. This comes from Philip Kennedy Johnson, Ricardo Federici, uh, Sunny Go, Alan uh, Salas. Oh, man, I think I have a typo here. Sala, hold on. Sorry. Pasalacqua, I did something to my outline. And <laughs> Arif uh, Prianto. So The Last God is this absolutely, John, you're reading this too, right? Or you read it? I read it. You read the whole thing? Yep. Dude. I okay. had time. <laughs> Do you have the, phys- the physical version? Or- no, I, I, it was on um, DC Infinite Universe Frontier. Okay. So I have the hardcover physical version of this. This book is like a Lord of the Rings level D&D handbook adventure mm-hmm. type of presentation. It's 12 issues total. Like I said, I'm about four or five-ish in. But this series has got it all. First of all, the artwork kind of looks a little bit like Olivia Coipel or stuff that you would find in mm-hmm. D&D manuals. It's really exquisite, hyper detailed, really dark, and also kind of, um, um, oh my God, like Lovecraftian in nature there are definitely like nightmarish tentacle like creatures that are are very lovecraftian in nature um eldritch horrors and stuff running around which is really cool but um so the book jacket for this thing you can actually take the book jacket off of this book and it unfolds into a giant map of all of the places that are in this world and it really helps because i kid you not this is probably the densest thing that I've read since we started this podcast. This thing has poems. It has songs. It has like whole pages of text, like seven, eight pages of little parts of stories that are happening in this world and kind of bridging the gap between these issues. Um, It's all about, it's 
I don't want to say it's standard fare because that would be a disservice to the book, but it's basically about heroes of old that defeated or so they defeated, uh, you know, a great evil. You come to find out 30 years later that they screwed it up and maybe they're not the heroes that everybody thought that they were. And the legend has changed and the evil is back. We need to assemble them again, but are they really the right people for this job uh, is kind of the setup for this. That's the bare bones version because like I said, this book is dense. There are so many characters. There are so many factions. There are so many lands and so many rules. And it is just awesome. It is, if you really want to like dig your heels into something and like have to block off whole swaths of time just to read one issue of this type of thing, uh, The Last God, this is from DC Black Label. Uh, it's freaking awesome. And I'm kind of taking my time with it and savoring it. Um, I will, I, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I can't believe that you read all 12 of these, man. That's, that's bananas. It, yeah. Those, those backs matter. That, it, yeah. It, that's dense. I mean, he, he, Johnson put some time and effort into this, creating oh, yeah. this. I mean, it, it, I understand what you're saying. It's very, um, it could be an homage to a lot of things that have come before, but it's still very real new, has some great takes and, some great character building in this yeah oh it absolutely yeah it absolutely isn't unique in that way in that like there is a lot of this stuff but you normally find this type of thing or at least i do like on in novels and on bookshelves you don't really find this level of this type of thing in comics like it's called like book one the feldspar chronicles or something Mm -hmm. like that like it's got even got an intimidating title (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know. How'd this end up at DC Black Label of all places? But it's been going on for a long time. I, I never know. knew about it until now. Yeah, I I didn't know about it until you sent out a picture that said I must own this book. I was talking to Ben Kahn. We were having a conversation, and they mentioned it, and I was just like, I gotta check that out. What should yeah. I buy? And and I ended up buying the physical version. I'm so glad that I did because it is an undertaking. It's really impressive. Yeah, like I might you get that. Yeah, you unfold that map and it's double-sided and it's it's all of the information that you need about all the different places and where everybody's coming from and there's like a legend for it and it's wild. It's so cool. Mm. It's so cool. Um, all right, and last but not least is Nightwing number 83. This comes from Tom Taylor, art by Bruno Redondo, colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Wes Abbott. I have been loving this series. I have really been enjoying uh, Tom Taylor's work with Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon and some of the other support characters that are in this series. Holy hell, though. I was cruising around on Twitter doing my thing, and uh, Crash Sheridan that I follow was raving about this issue. And I was like, I should read Nightwing tonight. This is a pretty ringing endorsement. I did not expect to become as like emotional and unhinged as I did multiple times. Yeah, Ruby, Ruby loves Nightwing too. All right, guys, it's okay. Yes, an absolute thank you, John, an absolute emotional roller coaster. There are multiple beats throughout this story that are so completely satisfying and things that I did not expect to happen in this book were happening. The art was so dynamic and so awesome and really, really drove home kind of the emotional gut punch 
that is the final pages of this when Dick uh, pretty much comes to a decision about his new lot in life and what he wants to do with Alfred's money. Uh, if you don't know, Alfred left Dick like just a ton, ton of money because Alfred is a smart man and was, you know, investing and, and, and doing all that stuff uh, during the years that he was working for Bruce. And so Dick wants to do something with this stuff and he comes to this decision and it is just, oh, it's so good. Pump your fist up in the air kind of stuff. If you're not reading Nightwing, please do. And uh, thank you to Crash for, again, for bringing this to my attention because this really, really lifted my spirits. I, I read this and I watched the newest episode of Ted Lasso in the same night. So I was flying high. <laughs> Let me tell you, that Ted Lasso, that show is so incredible. I cried my ass off at the the end of the, the latest episode of that show. I, that show I'm gets me so emotional. I would kick. I would kick anybody that tries to mess with Ted Lasso. Get yeah, right between them. I would. I would go to the mattresses for Ted Lasso. Uh, that's it. Boom, boom, boom. Does anybody have any questions for me? Nightwing was amazing. Yes. I mean, yeah, I, just the conversations he had with all the different heroes uh, to make sure he's having the right decision. And then when, you know, he, he's avoiding Bruce and then Bruce calls. And, and you know, it's just so many good story beats. And, yeah, I, I, got, I got a little weepy at the end, too. And I, I also watched Ted Lasso after reading Nightwing. And Did you really? I got a little weepy at that, too. Poor... I just I want that show to go on forever, and I want this book to go on forever, and and my life would be just fine with that. You're all caught up, right? Like you've seen the latest. Yeah. Oh that yeah. Final that final scene. That oh, final yeah. scene when she walks into the room. Yeah. Oh it's been, my it's god. Been building, it's been building to that, but earlier in the show when the, the he got the phone call, yeah, I knew I knew it was going to end bad, but. Mm. Mm. I'm so protective over him. He's just a special character, but I swear. I don't swear, mess with Ted. I, don't mess with Ted. No, don't mess with Ted. I'll pull my best so Roy Kin if you mess with Ted. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. So that's lightning rounds. Let's see. We have uh, right before we get to David's stuff. You know what? Let's let's talk. Let's talk to David for a little bit and then we'll we'll double back to the uh, we got some Spider-Man trailer stuff. Sure. That we could talk about. But uh, I want to talk to David because I want to make sure that we get all this stuff in. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. All right. So you, sir, have had a very, very successful Kickstarter launch for the second issue of the OZ. Yeah. Uh, Take us. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, and then we're only we're only halfway done at this point. Um, so we're, we're, we're very excited to see how the, the, the rest of the campaign go will go uh, in our last 15 days. All right. So I asked you this the last time that you were here when you did the other Kickstarter, but I want to ask you again, because I want to see if your perspective has changed. Take us through the first 24 hours of the campaign. What were you doing? And what was like, what was your response? Because this thing, this thing blew up and it was funded in no time. That has yeah. to feel amazing. It was, yeah, I was, I was pretty blown away. We, we fully funded in, um, in 40 minutes. Uh, what? Yeah. Uh, which I, I, I think we funded, I think it was two hours in the last campaign. So the fact that we funded in like less than half the time, uh, really wow. almost, you know, barely over a quarter of the time, uh, I'm kind of, I, I was very shocked. It it was a different 
kind of, it was definitely different launching the second time around. Um, I, our first campaign last year was my very first Kickstarter and uh, I was very nervous. I'm always nervous before the launch of a new book um, because you never know how people are going to respond to it. And and you never know if people are going to understand exactly how you're doing it. And, um, you know, I had gone into the last Kickstarter saying, how do we make $6,000 in 30 days? And I had been, I had been preparing for failure. You know, just really kind of thinking, what tricks can I pull out of my playbook to 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 get this across the finish line within thirty days? And um, nothing could have prepared me for funding in two hours. And and so I spent the rest of the campaign playing uh, catch up. Um, and <laughs> I thought you were going to say Minesweeper for a second. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I was just playing catch up for the rest of the campaign. And um, yeah, th- this this campaign, the I, I think because we had gotten such a, 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 a strong positive response to the first issue. I was able to prepare for failure still, but also to f- actually plan for success this time around. Um, and, and just thinking, you know, how would we attack things like stretch goals? You know, how would we, um, you know, uh, how would we um, figure out new ways to enhance the book and enhance everybody's, you know, value and just make sure people are getting a lot of bang for their buck. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of, that was an interesting way to, to go into this new campaign. Um, and, and, um, I was still really blown away by our, our first day's response. I mean, we actually got a higher first day, uh, we, we got more in our first day this time than we did last time, which I was kind of shocked. You know, there's no, there's no, um, you know, the, Scott Snyder's not running a Kickstarter right now. Keanu Reeves isn't running a Kickstarter right now. Um, there's no, uh, uh, what was I going to say? There's, um, you know, people don't even have stimulus checks here in the U.S. To, 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 to burn some extra money. And the fact that we've had people, you know, coming back and, and honestly, uh, you know, our average pledge is actually higher this Kickstarter than it was in the last Kickstarter. Um, which I think, you know, just, just goes to show like uh, people seem to really respond to the book in a big way. And I'm, I'm very excited for that. Um, Does, oh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it, it, it was nice though, launching a book, feeling a little more confident um, because that is a, a rarity for me. I'm always sort of thinking, you know, is this, is this where I screw up? Is this where they turn on me? Is this where, you know, I, I missed the mark. Yeah. That kind of like it, my next question, do you, does the response create any added pressure for you to, to really deliver on another chapter of the series? Well, thankfully, I, I had written all of the OZ. Um, I think I'd written, the, yeah, the, the whole series was written by the time I had launched the first Kickstarter. So thankfully, oh, nice. th- thankfully that pressure was off me. Um, you know, I, I can't speak for, uh, for Ruben Rojas because uh, uh, he's still drawing everything, but... Um, yeah, you know, I wanted to make sure, you know, it, thankfully the, the, the series was fully written by the time that people even knew the concept existed. So that kind of, uh, whereas like something like Spencer and Lock 3, you know, which I'm, I'm still working on, <laughs> you know, there that you feel a little bit of pressure because it's, you know, you, you, you did two installments that were well received and you want to make sure that the third and final one sticks the landing properly. Um, but for me, I, I, I made myself a bargain pretty early on, and I, I, I've, I've been sticking with it, which is, um, you know, I think people see 
ongoing, they see success as it has to be building on top of the previous success. You know, it has to be bigger and better. It has to keep escalating, you know? And I'm realizing, I think I realized pretty early on that that's a sucker's game, you know? Um, <laughs> you, 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 I, I could run Kickstarters, you know, for the rest of my life and they're never going to, you know, they will never just be building up, 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 up. There's going to be some that hit at a certain level and some that'll hit a little lower. And, you know, at the end of the day, like if something is like 400% funded versus 600% funded, it's still a success, you know? Um, and I think that's that's a cycle that it's very easy to fall into that, of being like, oh, well, you know, if I 400 this time, the next one has to be 400 or above, or it's not considered a success. And for me, it's always, you know, can I flex different muscles? You know, can I can I keep growing as a creator from book to book? Can I try new things? Um, can I experiment with a different genre or a different tone or a different voice or a different flavor to the book? Um, I, I talk all the time about how I want to be like the Baskin Robbins of comics. I want 31 flavors, something <laughs> for everyone. I remember um, you saying that. Uh, that hasn't changed since my first book. And um, so for me, you know, any sort of metric beyond that, you know, um, I, I try not to get too much into my own head over it, you know, whether it's whether it's sales figures or, you know, how many readers we have or, you know, what kind of reviews we get. Um, I, I'm realizing that, like, as long as I feel like I left it all out in the field, success is it's relative. And you just have to you have to just be grateful when you have any sort of success. It doesn't have to be better than the last success you had. Um, and, uh, I, I feel like that's, that was a big, important realization that I'm glad I had early on. Cause I think it would have driven me crazy <laughs> as a creator. Um, but yeah, especially for the OZ, I mean, there's certain, there's a little bit of pressure for some logistical things, particularly like finding like what covers do you want to use and then sort of figuring out like what pairs together nicely, you know, um, that lion cover that you have on the new campaign, that variant. Yeah, I'm on house. Like that um, downward lion. That, yeah, that, we're not. I native. want that. Um, I'm really. I'm. I'm glad that you like that cover because uh, Mon and I. Uh, we we designed that together. I. Uh, I'll have to find it. I have an email um, where it was. It was the uh, image of Miles Morales falling down in um, Spider Verse. You know that big iconic shot, and then a yeah. giant lion's head kind of just roaring down at it and i was like is is this like am i stupid like is there something to this and he was like oh yeah i I get exactly what you're saying now and uh he delivered that cover um so uh yeah that's awesome we 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 have a pretty collaborative back and forth you know uh, i mean english is not his first language um his uh his his partner um translates everything Mm -hmm. and i've i've met mon once I met him at New York Comic Con a few years ago, and he's such a sweet guy. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that I find when I when I talk with him, often like I draw a lot of stick figures. You know, I I, I collage a lot of things together just to be like, hey, is this anything? Um, and and uh, he he nails it. Um, so I, I uh, yeah, that I, I like that cover a whole lot, and and Mon really did just a, a, a terrific job on it. So um, I'm, I'm very, very proud of him. Uh, he's, I'm so glad that he finally got nominated for a Ringo Award. I've been pushing for him to get nominated for Best Cover Artist since our very first book together. 
uh, and uh, it's 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 long overdue and well well deserved. That's awesome, man. That's fantastic. So, what was your first introduction to the land of Oz? How long does this go yeah. back for you? Well, I, I think like many people, you know, my first introduction was the Judy Garland film. Um, you know, I think there's a degree of cultural osmosis uh, with, with that. I mean, and 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 that movie, you know, was was very important in, in film history and 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 even just kind of a sense of of, of American mythology. Um, it was one of the if it was it was one of if not the first movie developed for Technicolor. Um, that's why they have ruby slippers. In the books, they're silver, but they wanted to show that bright pop of red to really show off the, the saturated colors of Technicolor. So that's why that's why they invented that for the movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that was my introduction to it. I just I revisited it in college. Um, I took a class in adolescent literature. And I uh, wound up writing a term paper comparing L. Frank Baum's use of continuity uh, to build mythology. And I compared it to, uh, uh, to Marvel in the 60s. And um, so uh, uh, it's amazing how that knowledge that I never thought would be, uh, would be useful uh, wound up paying off in a big way. Hmm. So having uh, Bob, actually, I wanted to say, had sent over this really, really uh, stirring rendition of Over the Rainbow mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. before we got onto the podcast that is just yeah. haunting and beautiful at the same time. Who is this artist, Bob? Her, her name is Jane Monheit. She's a jazz artist. And that version, she actually recorded some years before that, but that version is from Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Oh, and that's incredible. Cl- cl- closes the movie. She's from, she's from Oakdale, no less. She's from right here on Long Island. Seriously? Wow. She has an amazing instrument in the technical terms of it, but there's so much emotion in what she sells in, in the song. And Judy is number one, will be forever. Jane Monheit's for me, the number two version of that song I've ever heard. I've heard a lot. That's, that's, that's one. That's I one. loved it. I might, I might uh, put this in the show notes so that people can go and listen to it. All right. Uh, David, do you have, so obviously you do a lot of research for something like in uh, the land of Oz uh, for this book. Do you have a favorite interpretation of the source material? Like, is it a movie, the books? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like return to Oz is like, it, it's, yes. It, oh, it's yes. In the one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, you know, I, I think in part because it's, um, it's a conversation, you know? I mean, I think the further down the line you go, when you start doing like so many different, you know, spinoffs and so many different sequels, it starts to feel a little like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. But Return to Oz, you know, because it's almost like a direct sequel to um, to, to the original Oz, you know, it, it becomes a conversation with the original work, you know? And I think that's something that we were aspiring for, for the OZ. Um, you know, the, the, I think the more archetypical and iconic the original is, you think of something like Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back becomes sort of a conversation with that. And mm-hmm. the strength of those two things, then you get uh, Return of the Jedi, which with it, despite some flaws, I still think reads really strongly as a conversation between, you know, in terms of Luke's arc, you know, of being sort of this 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 farm boy with very little confidence to to somebody who's being like really tested for his values and his beliefs and coming out the other side with a, a new degree of self-assuredness and confidence. Um, that's the sort of thing that we, we, were, we really like to do with the OZ. And I think it speaks to just, you know, 
because of that cultural osmosis, because everybody has an image of Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion, um, it's really flexible. You know, you're, it, it can withstand the conversation, so to speak. Um, and I think that really, you know, we can do a lot with these characters in a, and remix them in some really fun and interesting ways in a way that um, it still feels organic. You know, the archetypes don't break. And I think that speaks to why the the, the Wizard of Oz is is has such a, a timely or a timeless, I should say, a, a, a timeless story. Speaking of characters, I want to talk about your version of Dorothy yeah. for a little bit. Uh, she's a soldier, yeah. and she's she's got some uh, some PTSD going on, and it's a very it's a big, it's a big part of who she is in this first issue. Yeah. And I was wondering at what point did you decide to make PTSD a part of Dorothy's character? Um, well, I think the moment that I decided that we were going to do a war story, I think that became, you know, I, I think that was, that was just natural. Um, I, I think some of it is because I started developing this book right on the heels of uh, the first volume of Spencer and Locke. And, so I, I think trauma was kind of already on my brain a bit. And, um, and I think also I was, I was working on Spencer and Locke volume two concurrently uh, with this. And uh, I, there's a lot of things I love about Spencer and Locke two. And I, I love our villain Roach Riley, who's sort of our, our riff on Beetle Bailey, but, you know, talking about works that are in conversation with each other, you know, he's, he's sort of this homicidal bad guy who, you know, he was a soldier and he saw some horrible things overseas and it wasn't until he came back that something kind of snapped him. But, you know, you can see how the optics could look on a book like that. And so I, I wanted to make sure that uh, if we were going to do a book like that, that I still felt justified this sort of Heath Ledger Joker beats the deer hunter beats taxi driver kind of character that mm-hmm. if I was tackling a, 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 a flat out war story that, you know, I, I wanted to really dive deeper into, into PTSD specifically for, for the military, specifically for soldiers. And um, I, once upon a time, I, I used to be a, a crime reporter back in the day. I covered uh, crime and, and state politics for uh, uh, the Berkshire Eagle in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And um, one of my sort of sub beats uh, was the local military beat. And so I interviewed a lot of returning veterans to Berkshire County. It was the height of the recession. And Berkshire County is already kind of an economically split region. It's a lot of Northeasterners' summer homes and then crushing poverty for the people who are living there 365 days a year. And um, it really struck me, uh, you know, hearing these stories and hearing about sort of the feelings of of depression and isolation and alienation of people coming home and and being sort of unable to really convey what what was it like over there to people who had no idea what it was like to serve. And, uh, you know, the feelings of hypervigilance and, and the rapid mood swings that, that people would feel, you know, um, you know, being brought back just by a, a simple noise, you know, a crashing plate, a uh, firework, um, going from this environment where you have to be hypervigilant, you know, who knows who's going to have an IED in the road, um, and also hyper-regimented, you know, everybody's got a job and everybody's sort of got a task to do, versus you come back home to the U S and it's chaos. You know, it's every man fends for himself, throw you in the deep end of the pool. We're going to offer you very little in the way of support or understanding. And Mm -hmm. um, I remember, I remember there were specifically lines of, you know, uh, that I used in the OZ where people told me like, I would like go from like zero to 60. I would, I would, I would feel angry and have no idea why. 
I would feel like I, I would I'd be in tears and I'd have no idea why. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I remember one guy telling me that, you know, he'd go to the local pool and, you know, he'd just hold his breath and he'd stay under the water as long as he could because that's how he felt most quiet and calm and at peace. And mm-hmm. um, those really, those, those interviews really st- stuck with me. And I think that may be a reason why I have always gravitated towards trauma in my work. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, part of my process, especially when I'm coming up with kind of outlandish concepts like the OZ, it's figuring out what's the theme inherent to the premise. You know, if we're saying that, that the original L Frank bomb books, you know, where, where, uh, you know, the original Dorothy kills two wicked witches, convinces the wizard of Oz to split, hands everything over to the scarecrow and clicks her heels three times and splits in like the span of a week. Like I grew up during the invasion of Iraq. I know that's not a happy ending. Um, that, 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 that sounds like Baghdad to me. Um, and so if we're going to take that war premise, then we have to figure out, all right, like what's the themes to that? And, and, and what are, what's the character arcs inherent in that? And I think uh, trauma and PTSD, I think is, is a really, uh, it, it, I think it's a really organic uh, theme for a, for a book like this and, and, and one that I think gives Dorothy, our new Dorothy, a, a lot of heft as a character. Hmm. So do you think that through the OZ there is a, say, like a larger conversation to be had about war and how it displaces people? Because you have the 100%. the refugee you have the refugee experience, it seems to be a common thread between Dorothy's two homes in that first issue. Yeah. I mean, and and I think I think, you know, our first issue I think a lot of this book is talking about the costs of war, you know, uh, both the human costs in in the individual, but also just like, you know, sheer destruction and displacement and and the pain and suffering that goes along with that. Um, You know, our first issue is all about Dorothy kind of resisting the call for heroism, you know, because she has seen uh, some, some horrible senseless violence, uh, you know, in her time overseas and she wants no more. She, she doesn't want any part of that. I, I, it's completely understandable. And it's only by the end of our first issue that she kind of, she remembers why she served in the first place. You know, it was to fight for the little guy, uh, for the people who can't defend themselves. Uh, you know, not, you know, just defenseless families and children. Uh, and now our second issue is sort of the costs of that. You know, um, Dorothy is no longer, she's not really an anonymous pair of boots on the ground like she was in Iraq and Afghanistan um, because of by virtue of who her grandmother was, everybody's looking to Dorothy for answers. She's really this, this big symbolic figurehead. She's the closest thing to royalty that Oz has. It's like a chosen one situation. Very much so. And she's realizing that like there's a skill set of being a soldier and then there's a skill set of being this sort of chosen one leader figure and there's some overlap, but these are mostly very different skill sets. And there's a huge burden of responsibility and a lot of pressure of leadership that's that's resting firmly on Dorothy's shoulders. And, you know, this is war. And, and you know, war is never clean and there are always casualties involved. And so how's that going to affect Dorothy? You know, how, how are the stakes going to escalate and who's going to get caught in the crossfire? Uh, these are things that Dorothy is going to witness firsthand in this second issue. And uh, 
that that'll sort of bring things to a head for our third and final issue of just, you know, what are the costs here? You know, both, both the Dorothy as a human being, uh, both physically and emotionally and psychologically and her soul as a human being, um, as well as externally, you know, for, for the land of Oz in general, but also the, the, the fighters that have, have taken up Dorothy's cause as their own. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pretentious enough to think that like, we're going to cover every single angle of war. And I, I certainly am not smart enough to, to, to figure out how to end war uh, on my own. If I, if I did, I'd probably be doing something other than comics, but uh, I feel like we're able to have our cake and eat it too. We're able to, to dive into the real world psychological elements of, of soldiers that they, they deal with day in and day out um, that real world PTSD but we're also able to sort of elevate um, in, in, in a pulpier kind of way that sort of Star Wars good versus evil uh, 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 kind of war. Um, and and we're able to sort of weave in that nuance while still enjoying that kind of high adventure that even the original Wizard of Oz had. Um, and so I think it, it makes for a very unique type of story and a very interesting tone that uh, I think was challenging for me to write, but I think Ruben and Whitney and Dave Hopkins have done just a, a really fantastic job at, at realizing on the page. Right on. Yeah. It's, you know, you talk about challenges and I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, all of your, your projects and I'm, I reread scouts honor last night, which is just awesome by the way. And I feel like the scale of, your stories is just getting bigger and bigger. And so when I sat down to read the OZ, so as somebody who's read maybe all of your work, like it was a big, Oh shit moment for me. Just like, this is, this is David, like doing all of these characters and paying attention to all of this lore and bringing in, like, how do you manage so many different elements of such a large story in a world as big as Oz. Like you have, you mentioned the deadly desert, which is a a location. And first of all, I freaked out at that because I remember the deadly desert from return to Oz. And I was like, I just seen those words on the page. I was like, yes, we're going to go to the deadly desert. I don't know why I was so excited about it considering (laughs) it's a terrible place, but like I was so jazzed to recognize that stuff and like, the Winkies are referenced and all these things that I grew up with and know from the movies and the, the very limited uh, amount of time that I've spent with the actual texts. But like, do you just keep everything in computer files or do you have a whiteboard? What do you do? Um, you know, so it's funny. I mean, as far as Scout's Honor was concerned, that was that was almost impressionistic. For me in a lot of ways because that the the time frame for that series was so accelerated compared to anything else i've ever done um you know i i uh i let's see i had written the first issue of that prior to the pandemic and 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 um, we'd gotten the book approved obviously well before the pandemic but just based on the way that aftershocks contracts had evolved they they they, they uh, made some tweaks to their contracts I officially signed my contract for Scouts Honor like two weeks before everything shut down. Um, and so and so that was definitely like a challenge to figure out like, okay, not only like how do I write a post-apocalyptic thing during this, 
but you know, also like it was an accelerated time frame. I started writing, I guess that was early, mid March for issue two and March, April, May, June. I finished, I turned in the last script just before the 4th of July weekend. Um, of this year or last? Of last year. Okay. Um, so so that was like a four-month period of writing the whole series uh, while finishing up the OZ. I remember there was a period where I would I would write an OZ, or write a Scouts Honor script, turn it in, and then the next week I would write an OZ script. Um, and so the, the, those two books were kind of coming, coming up simultaneously. Um, Jesus. I think for, I mean, part of it is just, you know, detailing things in the outline stage. Um, you know, outlines are, are where I do a lot of the heavy lifting for my storytelling. And, you know, sometimes it'll start as bullet points, but it ultimately is like the book report version of the book. And I throw in as many details as I can think of. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of research, you know, um, the, uh, the, the Wizard of Oz is great because it's basically, it's got its own like Wikipedia page. So you could really spend a lot of time just digging into that. And um, the Boy Scouts, you know, I was reading, I, I read a Boy Scout manual, you know, I was, I was reading nice. uh, all, all the uh, articles on, uh, on the founder of the Scouts and, and how he took, took the Scout tradition from England and transplanted it to the U.S. Um, sometimes it's just like thinking of just like, what's the imagery here? You know, um, you know, especially for Scouts Honor, it was just like, when I think of the Boy Scouts, I think of. And I would just write down like a bullet point list. I'm like, okay, Eagle Scouts. Uh, okay, bow and arrow. Okay, you know, hunting, uh, you know, camping. Um, Ceremonial knives. Yeah, things, things. you know, the patches, you know, uh, you know, merit patches, you know, the, those, those sorts of switchblades. Um, that was something that we, we introduced in the last issue that that was something that kind of came a little late. And so I remember asking Luca Casalinguida, he had just finished issue one by the time that I had, turned uh, it started writing issue five and i remember saying hey for issue two can we give them these giant switchblades because i'm gonna pay that off in issue five um that's what it was it wasn't ceremonial blades what am i thinking of well we made them ceremonial in the book so you're okay okay so i'm not too far off you're not too far off um but uh yeah for the oz i mean part of it was helpful that we had like a long time to build it up um, you know, I'd been working on that book for years. I, I started it um, fall of 2017, and you know the Kickstarter didn't launch until fall of 2020. So like we had a long time to like get you know to 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 add new things in and to to rework things. But um, I do find that like the more of a rush that I'm in, um, the more details I just like throw into the outline. And then I find out as I'm scripting what I can keep and what I can't. Um, you know, there is a page count and that really it's, it is hard to budge that page count. Uh, Are you your own editor for this thing? Uh, yeah, for the OZ, I am. Uh, Scouts Honor is the first time that I've actually worked with an editor. Okay. Um, uh, and, and that was that was an interesting learning curve in and of itself, you know, um, just because it was great in that, like, it wasn't all on me. <laughs> like, I, you know, I not only, you know, not only was I not paying the creative team after Chuck paid the creative team, myself included, but you know, any changes that need to be made, like I would talk to my editors and we would sort of decide like, is this a fight worth fighting or is this something, you know, rather than throw Luca Casanguida off of his insane drawing schedule, he was churning out an issue, I think every six to eight weeks, which is insane. Uh, I've never worked with an artist that fast before. 
Um, you know, is there wow. something that we can fix in lettering? Is there something that we can fix in coloring? Um, you know, we, we had a couple instances where we fixed some stuff. In, 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 we fixed it in post, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, for the OZ, I remember I came up with that outline pretty fast because uh, I had been talking with a publisher about it when we first, when I first developed it. And so I think I knocked out that outline in three weeks, which <laughs> I, I have never done since. Um, and yeah, it was just, it, what was so great is like the land of Oz is so varied that I'm like, okay, what are different locales that I could throw in here? Like, okay, can I throw in a desert? Oh, the deadly desert. That's a thing. Um, you know, uh, and it's just thinking, I thought a lot about Star Wars, to be honest, you know, where Star Wars has all these very unique locations and you get a sense just by looking at them, what Tatooine's deal is. That's what it was. I was yeah. trying to remember the, the yeah. planet that I was thinking yeah. of from Hoth- Star Wars. It did remind me of that, you know, or Endor. Um, that was, you know, I, 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 so that was something I specifically talked with, uh, with Whitney Kogar, our colorist about is I was like, what's the Mad Max version of Star Wars look like, you know, where it's still like a, that gritty post-apocalyptic feel, but all these different locales and locations that, you know, just by looking at it, what, you know, what the high concept of that area is and what the dangers are of it. What's the, the vibe and the temperature. Of- there was a little bit of that look in that Han Solo movie that they made. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, and uh, so that was, that was really, you know, but I think that's the cool thing about working with something as expansive as Oz. It's just like, you know, if I was doing something at Marvel that there's, you know, there's so much mythology that, you know, you can find something that will fit whatever you need. Uh, there's just, it's, it's, it's so expansive that it'd be hard not to. Um, and so, yeah, if anything, you know, for me, it's always, I look back and I'm just like, Oh, uh, what haven't, what, what didn't I use? Like, what did I feel like I, I couldn't fit in? It would have been too much. It would have been too self-indulgent. And um, sometimes I pick it up for, for, for sequels. If I ever do sequels, um, you know, sometimes I, I know for Scouts Honor in particular, I was really, I was trying so hard to fit in the mythology, of the unknown scout somewhere in that book. And I just could not make it happen. Um, oh. You know, so maybe, you know, if we ever do a sequel to it, there's no plans at, at, at the moment, but I, I never say never, um, you know, and, and I'm sure when I finish the OZ, I'm, I'm, I'm sure when art is finished on that, I'm sure people will see it and be like, why didn't you include X, Y, Z? And I'm like, well, if you tell me now, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can include it in issue three. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people asked for wheelers last time. I was going to ask you about wheelers. We have wheelers in issue two. Um, yes. Because you demanded it. <laughs> That's right. I, I specifically told Ruben there's there's a sequence where I was like, Ruben, we have to add wheelers to this because I'm telling you, everybody, the, the three things that everyone's been asking for are wheelers, um, uh, the Gnome King. Um, yes. He'll be he'll be mostly in issue three, but he, he does have a quick appearance in this issue. Okay. Um, and then Ozma, which I, I will say we're not we are not having Ozma in this one. Because if we ever did a sequel, she's a character with such history that she would be better served as a headline. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to burn that card unless well, you have she's to. Actual Oz royalty, you know, and uh, so I think she'd have a lot of opinions about Dorothy and how she's running things. So right, if we ever do a sequel, I, I I would like to fit in some room for Ozma, so she she will not be present in in, in this story, but. 
Um, we have, you know, we're always looking at room for cameos because I think if anything, I was a little conservative about it in the first issue thinking, well, you know, everybody knows the Judy Garland film and I don't want to overload people with stuff that they don't know what it is. And, um, you know, people are like Jack Pumpkinhead. Hell yeah. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. hell yeah. And so I'm like, okay, maybe we can find some room for some other stuff in, 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 in this issue and the next. No love for TikTok. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Who is your favorite Wizard of Oz character, and who is your favorite character in the OZ? Is there a difference? Um, hmm. That's a good question. I, I, I mean, in the Judy Garland film, I, I was more partial to the Tin Man, um, and, and I am very partial to the Tin Man in the OZ. I feel like it's kind of a toss-up for me. I mean, obviously. Writing Dorothy is, is I, I love writing Dorothy. You know, her voice is so unique. Um, and I really do consider her like a spiritual cousin to De- Detective Locke. So like, I, I, I do, I always love writing that character. But um, it's really a toss up for me. Um, you know, I love the Tin Soldier. Uh, Ruben's design just really sold it. And I do think, no pun intended, he really is the heart of the book in a lot of ways. Um, Toto, though, um, <laughs> Toto, like this, this is a little personal for me, but you know, I, I am those who've been reading my Twitter feed for a while. Um, yeah. you know, we, we adopted my parents, Terry or Holly, uh, right around when I started writing the OZ, she's a sweet dog. We, we, had, we adopted her. I think she was 11 or 12 and, um, uh, she passed just before the pandemic shut everything down. She, she passed a melanoma. And so we we were lucky that we were able to care for her for her last year. You know, we or, you know we 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 got her every treatment that that was feasible. And um, I remember I had written originally we were going to write Toto out pretty quickly in the book, sort of an Obi Wan Kenobi kind of thing. And uh, when we got Holly's diagnosis, I immediately rewrote Toto's arc. I'm um, so glad you did. I, that was, I was one of the biggest surprises and one of my favorite yeah. parts of that first issue. It's, it's, it's definitely my favorite part. And, and, you know, I'm glad that we kept him because he's, he, he reminds, he's a good reminder that even though that like, this is a gritty war torn world, like there's room for absurdity here and a, and a little bit of whimsy. I mean, this is still the land of Oz. And um, I've, I've found that he's also like a very funny way to deliver exposition. Cause if you're going to like do an info dump, it might as well be from a dog with spectacles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very fun, uh, seeing Ruben's pages, you know, with, with, when Toto is like in a firefight with everybody, you know, Uh, (laughs) know, at one point, at one point he's just like strapped to Dorothy's chest. Um, and I think that's just like hilarious. Um, so Toto might be my favorite character, but I will say writing wise, Jack Pumpkinhead was really fun to write. Um, oh, because, do we get more of him in the second issue? Yes, yes. He he. Really, issue two, we get to see Jack Pumpkinhead and the Prince of Lions. Um, this is sort of their big introduction. This issue, nice. Okay. And um, yeah, Jack, I borrowed a lot from the comics version of Taskmaster for his voice. Um, just the idea of this very blue collar mercenary who like. He's not the smartest guy in the room. Um, he certainly is not putting on airs, but he is very good at his job and uh, has kind of a very dry sense of humor about it. And even in the script stage, uh, 
Jack's lines always really popped off the page for me. And um, Ruben did such a terrific job with his design. I, I, a little bit of trivia was um, Jack has a very cool like trench coat jacket uh, as that, that, it, that he uses. And uh, that was supposed to be for the Scarecrow. And uh, or Ruben drew it for the Scarecrow originally. And I was like, let's swap that. That looks much cooler on this guy. Um, so yeah, Jack is Jack is was a super fun character to write. But I think in terms of my favorite characters of the book, um, objectively, it's probably the Tin Man for me. But in my heart, it's Toto. Oh, <laughs> so. I really, I really do love the Toto character. I'm trying not to spoil too much from that no, first issue because that, that, that page, that splash page was glorious. Yeah, it's such a I, smile on my face. I it, same here. We 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 got that page uh, shortly after Holly passed, and um, it it really. I wish Ruben draws digitally. Otherwise, I would have I would have bought that original from him. Uh, I it's funny from from knowing you and from following you for the past couple of years. Like I immediately thought of Holly when I saw that page. Yeah, yeah. I will say uh, any Toto fans, they're gonna love issue two. He's got a, a big damn hero moment that uh, <laughs> is probably my favorite part of issue two. Uh, awesome. So yeah, we we get to influence a lot of stuff that I really dig in in in, in that sequence in particular, and just don't underestimate Toto. That's all I'll say. So you deliver something of a uh, Tin Man fastball special, yes, in that first issue. How 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 self indulgent and how like gratifying <laughs> was it to write that moment? Uh, the answer is yes to both of those. Uh, I felt like I, I, re- I honestly I just like wanted to light up after I did that. Um, I, was <laughs> I was just like, well, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to write a real like 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 a, 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 in the context of the X Men fastball special. But I was like, damn it, we earned it. Um, you know, if you're gonna have like a giant like like a giant Tin Man fighting. Uh, uh, winged monkeys. Yeah, you're gonna fastball special somebody, and um, so yeah, I was. I remember writing it and being like, "Yeah, that's dope." And then Ruben turning in the page, and I know Ruben. I know he he, he ha- follows Marvel to some extent. I know he's a big Moon Knight fan, but I don't actually don't know how into the X Men he is. Um, but he did a great job with it, um, and so I. Uh, yeah, he he really <laughs> when when that came out, I was just like, yeah, that's 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 the stuff. Um, <laughs> I feel like I I feel like you know, uh, I think my love of old school, you know, Marvel and DC, I don't think it's a secret. And uh, so seeing being able to incorporate it in ways that I still think feels organic, um, even if self indulgent, I was like, you know what, we're uh, we're forty pages into it, I earned it. I had a real Steve Rogers moment uh, on that page. I was like, I understood that reference. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a few people be like, oh, you fastball special. And I was like, yeah. Like, and you know what? It was super dope. And, uh, you know, I, we, we do get little elements of that. I mean, you know, Jack Pumpkinhead uh, has, has a, certainly a, a Green Goblin inspired glider that he uses because I, I consider him sort of the, the aerial fighter of the mix. And uh, sweet. Uh, the Prince of Lions, I should say, is actually he was very heavily influenced by uh, Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther, um, just in terms of the voice that I was trying to convey with him, and uh, and and sort of those the feelings of you know courage under leadership, you know, and 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 how do you ethically lead and ethically work as a king, uh, especially you know in, in the fog of war. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I come by my, uh, my love of superheroes, honestly. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we've, we, you can definitely see a lot of that in the OZ. All right. Well, I got some more, I got some quick fire questions for you, but before I do this, before we, we jump into these, does, uh, anybody else have any questions or comments or anything for David about the, about the book? Absolutely. David, it, what most people don't know, you do, obviously, because you're drawing for so many of these. There are 14 Baum novels. Yeah. And for most people, it's The Wizard of Oz, or maybe they know The Return of, as Steve did f- from the film. But you, you're mentioning Ozma and some of these moments that are going to be brand new to people. And how do you decide, oh, I love this one so much, it has to be in? But yeah. will anybody else get this? Will anyone quite <laughs> process it the same way I do? Yeah, though I think that's a great question. I mean, and that's part of why I, I was pretty conservative uh, as a starting point, you know, thinking like, all right, the Judy Garland film is the cultural osmosis. And there are certain things that are specific to the Judy Garland film that I cannot use because, you know, The Wizard of Oz is public domain. The Judy Garland film is not. So you, that's why, like, I had to watch out for, like, silver slippers and things like that. Just figuring sure. out ways to make it considered transformative. You know? um, and then it was it was sort of building things beyond that. Um, and, and some of it was just utilitarian. I mean, for example, you know, Jack Pumpkinhead, I was like, well, I think we can get away with that because of Return to Oz. And, and I think people know about it. And even if people don't know Jack Pumpkinhead's specific deal, I think it's easy to sort of make a one for one comparison of like, Oh, that's sort of our fill in for the scarecrow because the scarecrow is, uh, you know, I, you can see it in the preview. So I don't think it's a spoiler, but you know, he's sort of the big bad of our series. He was the one that everybody left in charge and uh, the, you know, he tried to keep it together and it went very, very poorly and he was deeply corrupted by it. Dorothy's attempt at nation building never goes yeah. well, does it? <laughs> You know, he, he was he was the critic turned pro and he couldn't hack it. Exactly. And I think that, you know, he kind of warped around that shattered ego a bit. And um, we, we, we dig into that a little bit more in issue three. Um, I, I do think the Scarecrow is probably one of my favorite villains I've ever written. Um, just because, like, he kind of comes by it honestly, if you think about it. I mean, you know, he didn't ask to do this. He didn't ask to be in charge. He, he just wanted a brain. And and everybody was like, well, you know, wiping my hands of it, we're out. And, uh, you know, now you see how, what happened. Um, but, yeah, you know, some of it is, is figuring out, you know, like, what's, like, considered an Easter egg versus, like, what is, like, a hard and fast, like, this is going to affect the plot in a major way. Sure. Um, and uh, thankfully, you know, s- similar to the, to the locations, where it's sort of, you know, I have an idea for XYZ location and, oh, wouldn't you know it, Oz happens to have something that's just like that. Um, Same thing structurally, you know, in terms of any sorts of characters you want. I mean, there's the iconography of the winged monkeys. You know, people are going to know about that. Um, You know, the the, the living trees are going to be making a a fun appearance in this issue. Um, You know, uh, down to sort of new inventions like the straw men. Uh, because I felt like, you know, if, if the Scarecrow is going to lead his own private army, it's going to be these homicidal-looking pitchfork guys. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I, I think beyond that, it was sort of, 
it's figuring out, oh, okay, like what's something that we can throw in there that it still works for the plot if you don't get it. But if you if you if you are have a deeper knowledge of the of the lore, you're like, oh, I get that. I see what you're doing here. Um, and uh, yeah, and then it's just kind of, you know, that way we're sort of able to have our cake and eat it too, because if somebody notices it, great, we've done an Easter egg. And if somebody doesn't quite make the connection, they're still like, well, this makes sense, you know, just by the the, the context of the story that's being told. Well, Love it. thanks, David. Does anybody else have anything? Yeah, John? good question. Oh, Eric, go ahead. Hey, so you didn't see that coming, did you? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Always keeping you on your toes. No, uh, just a quick question. You know, with especially with social media and everybody being, you know, so reactive to things that they see in all forms of media. Yeah. And with current events being what they are, do you ever do you ever wonder when you're writing a, a, a story that in some ways pulls from reality, you know, with with the PTSD topics and sure you know, war, do you wonder how, you know, the characters or the actors in each one of these uh, sort of depictions can be interpreted by readers, you know, in a, re- a reader in the U.S. versus a reader in some other country or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, so as far as, as, as domestic versus an international readership, that I can only sort of, I can only kind of anticipate so much, um, you know, and, and, and I, 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 I do, I do know that like the vast majority of our readership is going to be North America. And then we will have, you know, the occasional international backer. But I think to get to the heart of your question, um, you know, which is, you know, if you're drawing from the headlines, how do you do that justice? And how do you do it justice in a way that, Mm -hmm. you know, what happens if the news changes, you know, how are you going to do it in a way that, 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 that ages well? Um, you know, especially, you know, I, I, I'm, I read the newspaper, you know, I, I, I was not, I, I certainly had a degree of trepidation launching this while seeing everything going on in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, and, and we actually made it a point, like, you know, th- nothing in the preview is talking about Afghanistan specifically because we wanted to make sure like, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not a victim of, of poor timing in that regard. Um, mercifully, you know, um, after our first issue, which does a lot of the exposition, you know, our second issue is it's more about the land of Oz and we start to depart a little bit from specific theaters of war. I think ultimately though, to, 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 to answer your question. And I think this is something that I try to address in all of my books. um, It's about if you're dealing with real people's issues, whether it's, it's child abuse or mental illness or PTSD or somebody feeling that they have that that they have to bind their chest, you know, um, which is what we did in Scouts Honor, is that we tried to convey this in a way that is compassionate and respectful and treats our characters with dignity rather than uh, dignity and respect rather than punching down or treating what they're going through as a punchline. And I think ultimately, if you treat your characters with that dignity and respect and compassion, you're really treating your readers that way. Um, because those, you know, your readers are the people that give this meeting. Um, they're the ones who actually are living this. And, and so the, you know, we're trying to make sure that we're not exploiting them in that way. And that we are trying to treat everybody, you know, with, with a fair shake. And, um, I think that 
so far uh, in any capacity. I think that's made readers trust us. I think that's made readers give us the benefit of the doubt. I think it's given us a little bit of a wider runway than one might expect for dealing with subject matter that could be considered volatile. Um, but I, I, I've thought this since my very first book. It's so easy to just write shock for shock value's sake. And it's a hack move. It's not something that brings up emotional engagement or, or reader investment over the long term. You might get your foot in the door once with it, but people are going to be ticked. You know, it's not going to, they're not going to want to stick around for round two. And if I look at this industry in any way, and if I look at my career in any way, it's, it's through the lens of sustainability. How can I build that readership over a long term? How can I make readers give a damn? And I think it's by tapping into the emotion and how can characters sort of make that redemptive climb out of their trauma, out of their pain, out of their past. And um, I think that is what winds up resonating uh, to, to, to some of our readers, even if I don't necessarily have the granularity of detail of somebody like Greg Rucka um, uh, or a Tom King. But I think people know that we're, it's the emotional journey that everyone's on and that we're treating that with respect. I think that allows us to take a more timeless approach for the books, even when, you know, the headlines might, might not necessarily cooperate with what we're doing in any particular day. Excellent. Right on. Thank you. That's awesome. John, you got anything that you want to uh, ask before I do this uh, whole crazy question thing? Not really. Most of the questions I've had have been asked. So go ahead and do your fast five, your crazy questions. All right. Well, I've got one from uh, Bronwyn first. David, she wants to know, in your opinion, who's got the best shoe game in all of Oz? Best shoe game? Oh, man. Um, There's a lot of crazy shoes in Oz. I've seen them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, like those toe curlers? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, well, Dorothy's going to get some unique shoe game pretty soon. Um, All right. I, boy, I'm like trying to, Prince of Lions doesn't have shoes, so he's he's a no-go. Uh, he's, he's barefoot. And, Tin uh, Man's got those steel tip boots. He does have those steel tip boots. Um, I have to say, it's probably, in this series, it's probably Jack. I feel like Jack like is is way more stylish than most. Uh, in this, he got like wicked slippers or something. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because I, I let me, I, let me see if I can open up. Because uh, I don't know, I don't think I've seen his feet. I haven't been. On oh that yeah, wiki no, he's, yet. he's just got some. He's just got some cool looking like Italian loafer things going on. Um, <laughs> and then he's got like the uh, whatever the. They're not greaves are for arms, right? Or are those for legs? Uh, I don't know, but he's, 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 and he's sort of got the cool, like shin guard things going. I feel like Jack probably has the strongest shoe game at this point, but, um, you know, uh, Dorothy, Dorothy's on the hunt for some new kicks and it'll be uh, very interesting to, to, to see. Trying to find Greaves. I think I spelled it wrong. Let's see. They're, A-E? Arms. They're arms. They're arms. Okay. They're arms. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it protects the leg. Uh, Greaves are probably. Oh, Oh. Uh, so yes, so uh, I, I was right. So yeah, his, he's got the shoes, greaves uh, combo, and they look uh, pretty dope. 
only the most informed information here on the Talking Comics <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Limbs and arms. All right, let's go. Let's fast five this. You have to choose brains or heart. Heart. Okay. Cardinal directions, north, south, east, or west? West. Yellow brick road or the path less traveled? Path less traveled. Who, in your opinion, is the most wicked villain in all of Oz? Your choices are the Wicked Witch of the West, Princess Mombi, the Gnome King, or the Wizard himself? Mm, I'm probably going to have to go with Mombi. Fine choice. I love that character. That was going to be one of my questions to find yeah. out if Princess Mommy, but I'll let it be a surprise. Um, last but not least, you've got some uh, Shakespearean stuff going on in this book as well. And I'm wondering for our last question, to be or not to be? To be. That is the correct answer. Congratulations. <laughs> Your car will be in the mail. <laughs> uh, uh, David, do you have anything else going on? Uh, that you want to promote before we uh, jump back into some Spider-Man talk and then wrap this sucker up. Sure. Well, uh, you know, anybody who's a fan of Scouts Honor, um, you'll be able to pick up our trade paperback shortly. Um, it's scheduled to hit comic shops everywhere September 22nd, uh, as long as our, our shipping boat uh, 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 cooperates with us. Uh, it was supposed to come out a little earlier, but uh, a bunch of trade paperbacks, not just ours, are uh, still on a boat waiting to get docked. Um uh, so you can pick that up anywhere comics are sold uh, uh, September 22nd, and you can pick it up on Amazon or the bookstore market, I believe, the following week, first week of uh, first week of uh, October. Um, and then meanwhile, yeah, you can back the OZ. You know, we've got uh, all sorts of uh, uh, reward tiers for any, uh, any budget, uh, any level of involvement. If you missed our first campaign, you can get digital and print catch-up tiers. You can get all four covers of issue two for the price of three. Or all nine covers for issues one and two for the price of seven and a half. We've got uh, one limited edition Spencer and Lock plushie left. Uh, oh, got, you still have those? We 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 found a couple more. So oh, amazing. One left. So uh, we we just got somebody snap another one up last night. Um, and uh, we have I think two more sets of uh, Scouts Honor Ranger Scout uh, merit badges. We have all fourteen from my personal collection. Um, oh wow. And, and 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 I think only seven have been in the wild so far. So this is the only place you can get all of them. Um, so you can be the <laughs> ultimate Ranger Scout and the ultimate Yellow Brick Road Warrior. Uh, you can get drawn in the book. You can get an original commission from Ruben Rojas. You can do a Skype session with me where I'll give you notes on your script um, or notes in your Kickstarter or anything else you want notes on. Um, and uh, yeah, and everything in between. Um, so uh, we've also got some really cool stretch goals, um, uh, a digital comics extravaganza, has already been unlocked, so all backers will get that. All physical backers will get a, a, a Battle Chasers inspired print from yeah. artist Edu Souza. Um, we just unlocked um, our painted card set from artist Rachel Persephone. So all oh, wow. all hundred dollar pledges get it automatically added for free. Otherwise, you can add them to your order for fifteen dollars on uh, either Kickstarter or Backer Kit. And we just announced this morning. I'm so excited about it. I've been waiting the whole campaign to show this. Um, uh, our enamel pins, they are, uh, uh, courage badges. Uh, oh man, those are the magic words around here. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if we crack $35,000, uh, I feel very confident that we might, 
Um, uh, all $60 pledges will get them automatically added for free, or you can add them to your purchase for an additional $10. Oh, I'm going to have to get those for Bronwyn. She is an enamel pin fanatic. It's I think they're honestly, they might even be better than our last enamel pins. Uh, artist Rio Burton, who did a variant cover for us last time, she worked really hard on these pins and they, they look gorgeous. Uh, so I'm very excited uh, for, 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 to roll those out. And uh, who knows what other stretch goals we might have uh, in store. Uh, we might Oh man, baiting everybody. Stuff. Couple, couple other cool stuff uh, uh, that we have left in the chamber um, uh, that we're, we're we're crossing fingers that we hope people will uh, will will, uh, will will get access to, including our social stretch goals. I have a pinned tweet on my Twitter page. It's just Pepo D. It's my last name, first initial. Every fifty retweets that that tweet gets, uh, all of our backers get another reward. Uh, so right now we're we're going for a behind the scenes commentary track uh, for a hundred tweets. And you know what? I will spoil it. This will be uh, an exclusive to you guys. If we hit 150 retweets, we will have a brand new theme song for the OZ. Oh, look at that. Nice. So, uh, so, so tell your friends, keep retweeting, because uh, every 50 every fifty retweets my pinned tweet gets, uh, there'll be more rewards for everybody. I'm going to go and retweet that right now. <laughs> uh, well, maybe not right now. Maybe, maybe we'll wrap this up <laughs> and then I'll do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's fantastic, man. I'm so excited for you and your team. Thank you. And wish you nothing but the best in climbing those numbers and getting your your story out to people. It's a it's a hell of a book, hell of a debut issue. And I'm really jazzed to check the rest of it out. You've got me very, very excited for everything that's to come. Well, thank you for, uh, for for joining us as a Yellow Brick Road Warrior. We really Of course. Yeah, man. My name's in the back of that book. I saw it. I was like, there it is. And we're awesome. Excited. We're excited to have it back for uh, for part two. Sweet. All right. Let's uh let's dip back a little bit. And uh before we get out of here, we didn't get to talk about the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer. I feel like this dropped a thousand years ago, even though it was <laughs> just last week. Uh it was last week, right? It was right I'm after not crazy. the show last Monday. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, so No Way Home came out. I keep wanting to call it Far From Home. And this... <laughs> a different movie. <laughs> yeah, a different movie. And uh, there's there's some stuff going on. Spider-Man was obviously outed at the end of the Far From Home. Mysterio blew up his spot. And Peter is dealing with the fallout of that. It's affecting him. It's affecting the people that he loves. And he decides, he gets the bright idea to go and see his buddy, Dr. Stephen Strange. And he's like, hey, man, my life has been shit lately. Can you help me out? Can you, like, change reality and make it so that people forget that Mysterio did this thing? And, of course, Peter is kind of talking a mile a minute, like the Micro Machine Man. He ends up screwing up the spell. And now we have, I guess, fractures in the Marvel multiverse and it is all out spider panic. People from different Spider-Man movies are showing up. And it's uh, this teaser trailer has at least a few reveals as to who's going to be showing up. And uh, I got to say, I am pretty excited, as was the rest of the Internet, because this trailer, I think, broke every record uh, for a trailer ever, I think. Um it was a lot, whatever it was. And people were jazzed. And I am going to ask Bob now if he's watched it and what did you think? I am also very excited 
for all the reasons you mentioned. It still has all the little quirks you're expecting from Tom Holland and what they're doing. We have a lot bigger stakes now with all that happened with that last movie with Jonah and Mysterio. And now I'll I'll throw a theory. I am not so certain that Stephen Strange in the bathrobe is our Stephen Strange. Okay, I saw something online. I saw something on TikTok of people talking about this, about how that might not be him. No, I had someone the way that he's at. Right, I had someone though correct me. Well, what about when he was in the operating theater and he was doing all Kenny G or, or Chuck Mangione music trivia, whatever? He's that sort of guy. And I don't think it's quite the same thing. Again, the trailer, we don't know what order this has been cut into. It's not in the same order the movie might be. So that meeting could be down the road. He may have seen the other one before. And you should always listen to Wong. I'm going to tell you that, first of all. And he he definitely (laughs) does it there. But the little bits and pieces of, yeah, there's a goblin bomb. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's Willem Dafoe's voice. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you have Alfred Molina addressing him as Peter. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Love it. Can't wait to see what happened and how this will then lead into Doctor Strange 2, which I think they're just finishing up filming. I believe so, yes. So who, uh, does, John, who, who did, breaks the multiverse? Is it Steven? That's the thing. Peter, like, they, they, Wanda? Loki? They, Sylvie? They broke it in Loki, right? Like, this yeah. is just an extension of that. It, I'm could be happening, it could be happening at the same time. Yes, that's true. I was, I just, I, I'm... Obviously, we haven't gotten enough of Phase 4 yet, so we don't really know what the timeline looks like. There's just not enough material to line everything up. So I'll be very curious to see how that all corresponds with you know other events going on. Um, maybe it even happens at the same time. Who knows? Uh, John, what did you did you check out the trailer? Yeah, I, I watched it. I, I thought I had the same feelings that, that everyone else had. I thought it looked looks amazing. I I really trust this, you know, these, this creative team that done, this will be the third one. I have feelings that this might be the last of these and, and I, I hope they don't, but Sony might take their toys and go play somewhere else. But it, it, it's just Tom Holland's Spider-Man has been a joy uh, seeing uh, uh, Cumberbunch is, is uh, Cumberbunch. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Cumberdoodle. Cumberdoodle as as Doctor Strange, uh, and then Molina. I love Spider Man too. I, I loved Molina's Doc Ock, and, and just to get get some more of that. And I don't care if it's only for five minutes. I think that'll that'll be the price of admission for me. Hmm. Uh, Aaron, what do you think of there being a nefarious uh, Benedict uh, Bandersnatch in this movie? Oh. And did you like the trailer? I I saw the trailer. I actually had to think about it for a second because when I was trying to remember, I was like, did I actually watch this? Why don't I remember it? (laughs) But it came to me. It's nothing to say, nothing about the movie. It's more about my brain. Um, I actually, I I think it it looks fun. It looks great. I'm trying not to get so caught up into trailers lately because they can be such a misleading. That's true. 
they can just be misleading and I don't want it to impact how much I've enjoyed the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies or the excitement about the films and all that stuff. So, I mean, I, I, I got nothing bad to say about it. I think it, it looks fun. It looks great. It, it's, I'm excited to get back into that space, but you know, let's see what mm-hmm. happens. Let's see where it goes. I'm, I'm not doing any theories. I just refuse to do any <laughs> theories. I'm just going to let it wash over me as it happens. It's Mephisto. Every, everything in the Marvel universe. Now it's Mephisto. Nope, no theories from me. All right. David, <laughs> did you get to check out the Spider-Man trailer by any chance? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm interested. I uh you know, I, I I'm trying not I try not to speculate too hard on these things. I I I found I didn't really watch any of the trailers for the Suicide Squad, the new one, uh the new James mm-hmm. one, and I had a lot of fun just being like genuinely surprised by everything. But um yeah, you know, I, I I think there are reasons why why Spider-Man teams up with other Marvel heroes. Like, I understand why people, there are people who complain, oh, why can't Spider-Man, st- you know, stand on his own? And I think because it is sort of a profit-sharing arrangement, Marvel wants to get as much bang for its buck as possible. And so they want to elevate some of their other characters on top of having a Spider-Man movie. It's it Spider-Man. The whole reason he was brought into the MCU is he was supposed to be additive, you know, um, uh, since he is sort of shared between Marvel and Sony at this point. Um, so I, I think, you know, having more Dr. Strange, you know, I, I like, I like uh, crash bandicoot as, um, as, as <laughs> <laughs> and, um, that was a good one. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Uh, no, you know, I, 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 um, my, this is just wild speculation on my part. I clearly don't know anything anymore than anybody else does, but I, uh, I feel like we're going to see all the villains from the various Spider-Man universes. And so uh, we'll see Doc Ock. We'll see Electro. We'll see Sandman. Um, you know, we'll see a green goblin and, um, I don't, uh, we'll probably see the lizard and I don't know who the final villain is yet. I'm blanking. I know there's one and I just, I, I don't know who, who I'm missing. Um, and then I think by the end of it, we'll have like a short cameo with Toby and Andrew. Like it'll be all the Spider-Man team. You think both of them? I think so. Um, I, I, I think that'll have it, it. It's either both or none is, is my thinking. Uh, yeah. There's one shot in the trailer that there's something in the background that people are speculating, whether it's lizard or venom mm-hmm. showing up. I would be so, surprised if it'd be Venom at this point, just because of Sony's push on the character. Um, yeah, you know. Um, so I, I feel like I feel like even in the multiverse, I'd be surprised if that happens. But I, uh, I, I, there's definitely a sixth one that like I was just talking to a buddy of mine about this the other day, and so like I feel like a terrible fan for like not remembering um, uh, who who the, who the villain I'm missing here is. Uh, you know, it's probably not Rhino, but it could be Rhino. Uh, you know, um, and I'm trying to think. There's definitely somebody I'm missing from one of the other Spider-Man movies. But the Vulture, Vulture. That's it. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's it. Vulture. Uh, I could see Vulture coming back uh, for 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 this one. Um, so I don't know. Um, I'm I'm very curious, especially because like, you know, they 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 clearly have Michael Keaton waiting in the wings. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think they were saying, wasn't he in Venom one? 
or he's he's in Venom Two, or maybe no Morbius. That's it. He's in Morbius. Oh right, he had a cameo in that. That movie. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we saw uh, if we saw Vulture round out the Sinister Six, but it's definitely going to be six of them. So I'm curious who who who, who the final roster is going to be. I suppose we shall see. All right. Well, we don't have to wait too much longer. It's only a few months away. Christmas. Yep. All right. Uh, some quick breaking news, and then we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. But uh, Bridget Regan of Marvel's Agent Carter has signed on to play Pamela Isley, aka Poison Ivy, in uh, Batwoman season three. So, a little bit of news for you if you haven't heard yet. No, no reactions. Nothing. I love Poison mm-hmm. Ivy. I haven't watched any Batwoman um, since uh, they changed things up a bit. What's up, Aaron? I was just going to say, I thought the bigger scoop would be that there's going to be a Batwoman season three. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> cold as ice. Yeah. Cold as ice. All right. All right. That's uh, all right. What, um, what books are we looking forward to this week? Bob, what are you picking up? Just two. Wonder Girl number three, Captain Marvel 32. All right. John, what are you getting? Uh, Batman, Fear State Alpha, Infinite Frontier 5, Wonder Girl 3. I think I might try Dark Age number one, Marvel's new event by Tom Taylor. Hellions number 15, and I might uh, I might hate read Avengers 48. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Aaron, sorry. What they're doing to the She-Hulk is just not good. <laughs> oh, man. I don't even want to know. Aaron, what are you getting? I'm no stranger to the hate read. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, New Mutants 21. Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> just saying. Uh, Infinite Frontier 5, Hellions 15, uh, Geiger number 6, Captain Marvel 32 is supposed to come out, isn't it? Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, Wonder Girl 3, Wave of Star. Uh, I believe there's a Last Annihilation book with Wiccan and Huckling coming out. There is. That uh, you know how much I love my Wiccan and Huckling. So, uh, and it was alluded to in one of the books recently, um, part of the story. Commanders in Crisis 12, which I think might be the last one. Um, and also Dark Ages, number one, only because it's Tom Taylor. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, David, are you uh, are you a Wednesday warrior or you just kind of pick things be. up whenever? Um, I'll definitely be picking up Layla Star uh, yeah. this week. And uh, let's see. Um, I'll definitely pick up the X books just cause I, I, I love the X men books. Um, dark ages with Tom Taylor, um, uh, long, long awaited, excited to pick that up. And then, um, I have a couple of late shout outs that I got to pick up. Uh, I need to pick up my buddy, Ryland Grant's new book at source point press, uh, suicide jockeys. Um, and, uh, I want to pick up, uh, my pal Danny Lore's uh, new transformers book. I meant to do that, uh, earlier this week and didn't get a chance. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to, to, to pick those up and then sort of flip through it and see what I missed. Awesome. Uh, I think I'm going to get into the Batman Fear State. I, I don't know. There's a lot of books associated with this thing. We'll see. I'm already picking up a few of them, so maybe I'll dive in. Uh, I've also got Wonder Girl number three, Captain Marvel 32, another Demon Days. Demon Days Cursed Web number one is coming out. Uh, very much looking forward to that from Peach Momoko. 
Uh, Hellions number 15, New Mutants number 21, Black Hammer Reborn number 3, Sweet Paprika from Mirka and Dolfo number 2, and of course The Many Deaths of Layla Star number 5, the final issue of that wonderful, wonderful series. And that's going to do it for me, and that is going to do it for us. I just want to thank David My pleasure. so much for hanging out with us. Oh, of course. No, thank you guys so much for having me. And thank you to everyone listening. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, we'd love to have you join our Emerald Army uh, in the trenches of the Occupied Zone. So uh, back the OZ today. Nice. 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 Like a professional. (laughs) All right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've reached the end of this week's edition of the Talking Comics podcast. I feel like I'm forgetting some things, but we're going to just wrap it up anyway. As always, you can send us your comments or questions through our email, podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. We are also on Twitter at Talking Comics. We've also got talkingcomicbooks.com where you can find reviews and features from our fantastic contributors. Bob, where can our listeners find you? Old-fashioned email, Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. Uh, Joey is at Joey Braccino online. Aaron, where are you? On Twitter at Aaron J. Amos. John? At John P. Burkle. David? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at PeposD. It's my last name, first initial. Or David Pepos Comics on Facebook. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks, at bit.ly slash pepnews. Or visit my website at davidpepos.com. Best name for a newsletter ever. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And I am, of course, at dead underscore anchoress on the Twitter and the Instagram. Uh, One final bit of business that I will mention is uh, if you happen to be, and I don't know if there's anybody left, but if you happen to be uh, part of the, the, the Patreon, if you've seen the Patreon that we have up, that Patreon is being sunsetted at the end of this month. We are killing that. It is going away. Uh, it is long overdue. And I will just mention, we don't have all the details yet, but we do plan on launching a brand new Patreon soon. Uh, and we're still working out all the logistics, what we're going to offer. Uh, we've talked about this in the past. We're going to keep things kind of low end for a little while and feel it out and see how it goes. Not over promise. We want to deliver what we can uh, to the people that decide to contribute, but uh, you've been asking and we've been talking about it and we are putting something together. And so as soon as we're ready to launch and as soon as we know the details, we will share all of that stuff with you. So uh, look forward to that in the coming weeks, I will say. Uh, Beyond that, Thank you for listening and be excellent to each other. And until next time on the Talking Comics Podcast, to be continued. <laughs> <laughs>